This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 90th episode of the program. Today is April 14th. And once again, we had another phenomenal week in terms of new signups for contributors on PayPal and Patreon. So before we get started, I want to thank all of these individuals for deciding to join the independent progressive media revolution. And especially during a really important time when YouTube seems to be wanting to shut down independent progressive media creators. So thank you all so much. At the end of the episode, I will be thanking each and every single one of you by name, as I usually do, just to show you how appreciative I am of your support. So on today's episode, first, I'll be talking about how Tulsi Gabbard was attacked by the Democratic Party establishment because she denounced Trump's acts of war in Syria. Now, I'll also discuss how the media has been a cheerleader for Donald Trump's war efforts. And I'll also talk about Bernie Sanders' unity tour with Tom Perez, how Rachel Maddow is cashing in on Russian hysteria. I'll discuss Sean Spicer's gaffe and how the so-called resistance to Donald Trump is now praising him since he decided to drop bombs on Syria. Now, additionally, the DNC abandoned a Bernie crowd in Kansas And a Washingtonian representative gets called out at a town hall for refusing to support single-payer. And in addition, I'll talk about how Donald Trump is planning to cut Social Security, and I'll discuss how he is holding health care of poor Americans hostage. And finally, I will catch up with H.A. Goodman. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Hopefully you enjoy. Let's go ahead and jump right in because we've got a lot to cover today. After President Trump decided to illegally and unconstitutionally attack Syria, he received praise from warmongers on both the left and the right. So in a different segment, I'm going to talk about how he has a bunch of new fans on the left after he decided to bomb Syria. But what I really want to focus on right now is someone who dared to speak out against his actions. And that individual is Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard because she's seen the cost of war firsthand. She's an Iraq war veteran, and she decided to speak out against Donald Trump's actions. So in an interview with Wolf Blitzer on CNN, this is what she had to say. Well, Wolf, I remind you about what happened before we launched an invasion and occupation of Iraq. Uh, Then Colin Powell and many others within the administration came to Congress and came to the UN claiming they had the evidence proving that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. We launched a completely destructive, counterproductive war based on that intelligence, which has now, years later, proven to be wrong. We had leaders in Congress then who questioned that evidence that was presented and voted against that war because they were not convinced by the administration then saying that they had the proof necessary to launch this war. So yes, I'm skeptical because we have to take at a premium the cost of these wars, not only on the Syrian people and the people in the Middle East, but the cost of these wars here in the United States at a time where you know we don't have money to build the roads that we need here in Hawaii or in other parts of the country. Why should we just blindly follow uh, this, this escalation of a counterproductive regime change war, sending American taxpayers dollars on these failed regime change wars that we've seen too often in Iraq, in Libya, and now continuing in Syria. So to me, every single thing that she said there is perfectly reasonable. However, you're not supposed to question 
the pro-war propaganda that the media and political establishment uh, is now shoving down your throat. You're supposed to just shut up and take this information and not question it one bit. So after she made this appearance on CNN, the Democratic Party's leaders united to call for her head very quickly. So first of all, we had the president of the Center for American Progress near attendant essentially call for Tulsi's constituents to vote her out of Congress, tweeting people of Hawaii's second district, was it not enough for you that your representative met with a murderous dictator? Will this move you? One. <laughs> now, I can't not mention how ironic it is that her Twitter icon says resist and the banner on her page literally says join the resistance. But I mean, when Tulsi does in fact resist Donald Trump on one very important issue, all of a sudden Neera Tandon wants her voted out of office and doesn't want her to resist. And furthermore, if Neera Tandon is worried about Tulsi Gabbard meeting with murderers, maybe she should have talked to her friend Hillary Clinton when she was meeting with war criminal Henry Kissinger. And also, I have a suggestion for Neera Tandon. You know, I think that the name of your organization is probably inappropriate because it doesn't seem like Americans will be making much progress if we're pulled into another never-ending war. So maybe you should change your name to um, Americans United to undo progress because that's exactly what another war would do. But former DNC chair and current lobbyist Howard Dean agrees with Neera Tandon, retweeting her and saying overall that this is a disgrace. Gabbard should not be in Congress. But politicians aren't the only ones that are attacking Tulsi Gabbard. So MSNBC, the so-called liberal media network, dedicated five minutes to attacking and slandering Tulsi Gabbard. But did they bring her on to debate her and, you know, uh, challenge her on this topic because they disagree with her? Well, of course not. They just brought on people who would slander her and do their job for them. How do you respond to Tulsi Gabbard? I think it's outrageous. Uh, there's a long, well-known history, both in our intelligence committee, Amnesty International, Doctors Without Borders. Every single one of these agencies has said that Assad is using chemical weapons. He's a barbarian. He's murdered a half a million of his own people. I can't imagine how you could make a statement like that, especially being on the Foreign Relations Committee. I can't imagine what could possibly have been going through her head. And to that end, you I put a tweet I, out I, I don't there. I'm going to read it to everybody, think, okay? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so you said that Gabbard should not be in Congress, that this is a disgrace. All she's asking for is proof, though. Is, is that a if, you, if you're on the Foreign Relations Committee and you haven't seen the proof in the last five and a half years that Assad is a butcher and used chemical weapons, there's something the matter with you. Howard Dean couldn't imagine what was going through her head. Well, I don't know, Howard, maybe the same thing that was going through your head in 2004 when you campaigned against the Iraq war when you ran for president because... Back then, intelligence officials told us that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, and lo and behold, we invaded Iraq, and we found no weapons of mass destruction. So maybe this skepticism that Tulsi Gabbard is, is displaying right now, it's so that way we don't have another foreign policy blunder like Iraq. But apparently, Howard Dean doesn't want to learn his lesson. Now, they then turn to the second warmonger to attack Tulsi. I think it's hard looking for headlines, frankly, because there's no other reason to come out with this kind of 
insane, literally, it is insane to think that Assad is not behind these chemical attacks. And she's looking for her time in front of the cameras, and I think it will prove to be very detrimental to her career because she also will lose a lot of credibility with her colleagues on both sides of the aisle. This isn't a Republican or Democratic issue of who released those chemical attacks. Mm. Both sides agree this was Assad. Now, you may have difference about how we should go forward with it, but certainly he should be held accountable and named as a man who is using weapons of mass destruction on its own people. Listen to what she's saying. She said, certainly Assad should be held accountable. Why don't you just come out and say that you want war with Syria? You want Donald Trump to invade Syria. You want a ground war with Syria. Certainly, I would have more respect for you. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to manipulate audiences. You're trying to prime viewers into thinking, yeah, he should be held accountable. What should we do? And you're trying to plant that seed in their head so they kind of connect the dots and realize, yeah, if he should be held accountable, the best thing we should do is war. Why don't you just say you want war? What's the point of beating around the bush? We all know what you want. Just say that you want war. And she said that it is literally insane to think that Assad is not behind these chemical attacks. And this will prove to be detrimental to Tulsi Gabbard's career. Um, it's literally insane to ask for evidence. Is that what you're seriously condemning here? We shouldn't ask for evidence that Assad did something? Really? Because we did not have an independent investigation, and so we're just believing what intelligence officials are saying, blindly so, anonymous intelligence officials, mind you, and we're supposed to accept and not even question whether or not Assad is in fact responsible when this would not serve Assad right now. And if this does in fact prove to be detrimental to Tulsi Gabbard's career, well then that just shows that she has integrity. She doesn't give a shit about her career. What she wants to do is speak the truth. She's speaking truth to power. And in this case, she's speaking truth to the media and political establishment that is hell-bent on going into another unnecessary war with a country that didn't attack us. So, it, to, su to suggest that it's insane to even question this is outright absurd and both of these idiots here should be completely ashamed of themselves now my favorite part is that after this pro-war narrative has been shoved down our throats constantly howard dean had the audacity to say this i doubt the average american thinks that assad had nothing to do with chemical weapons or or we should have an independent investigation to find out if he did there have been a zillion i mean look you've got to trust the people on the ground the american people thinks that assad did this Hmm, I wonder why. Could it possibly be that people like you are doing pro-war propaganda on every single channel right now? Could it possibly be that the corporate media is trying to push this down our throats? Could that be why you're manufacturing consent right now? It, it's just so ridiculous. And furthermore, the same mainstream media outlets who we're supposed to trust help get us into the Iraq war in the first place. I'm talking about the New York Times, the Washington Post, and furthermore, they are literally doing pro-war propaganda. Media Matters explains that the Washington Post is allowing writer Ed Rogers to push for and praise military action against Syria without disclosing that he's a lobbyist for defense contractor Raytheon, which makes the Tomahawk missiles used in the recent strikes. And he's claiming that the average American doesn't want to have an independent investigation. He literally said that. I don't think they want an independent investigation. Or we should have an independent investigation to find out if he did. You're saying that the American people doesn't want the truth? After Iraq? After our officials, after our intelligence community, who we're supposed to trust, lied to us, you are claiming to speak for us uh, and say that we don't want an independent investigation? 
Look, the only reason why you would not want an independent investigation is if you're afraid of the truth coming out. And it seems as though Howard Dean is, in fact, afraid of the truth coming out. Now, the thing about Tulsi Gabbard is that she's not just going to lie down and take their bullshit because she took to Twitter to call them out. Because, I mean, what we're seeing really is the same smear tactics that the Democratic Party used against Bernie Sanders and then Keith Ellison. They're now using that against Tulsi Gabbard. So she's onto their tricks and she decided to expose their hypocrisy, saying those who've declared Trump a habitual liar now vilify those refusing to blindly follow him into another regime change war. Hypocrisy. She also says establishment. Resist, 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 except when it comes to waging war on Syria. Hashtag resist Trump's war. And I like how when she specifically uses terms like resist, She's referring to people who are very close with the establishment, very close with people like Hillary Clinton. Now, she also made the strong case against intervention, saying, We need to learn from Iraq and Libya, wars that were propagated as humanitarian but actually increased human suffering many times over. No leader of either party for or against U.S. intervention should let POTUS escalate another regime change war without congressional approval. Some of my friends never came home from the Iraq war. We have the duty not to allow lies and speculation to drag us into regime change war again. Now, additionally, she explains, the U.S. should have supported a thorough U.N. investigation and international law in regard to the gas attacks in Syria. Now, a proper investigation of the attacks will likely not even be possible because of Trump's reckless rush to bomb Syria. So I love this because Tulsi Gabbard is sending a huge message to the Democratic Party establishment. She's saying, hey, I am not going to take the bullshit smears that you continue to lodge against progressives. I'm just not going to take it. Because, I mean, ever since she resigned from the DNC to endorse Bernie Sanders, there's been nothing that she could do to please the establishment. I mean, Howard Dean first attacked her because she was apparently pro-Trump, because she met with him when he was first elected. But now that she's going against Trump, he's attacking her again. So, I mean, there's no way that she can win. The people from Hawaii basically have her tabbed as extremely ambitious with flexible principles. Really? Yeah. So in the end, this is my message to all of these so-called progressives on the left who are cheerleading Donald Trump on now as he is trying to lead us into another unnecessary, illegal, and unconstitutional war. Tulsi Gabbard isn't going anywhere. You can try to primary her, but good luck, because she beat her Democratic primary challenger by a 70-point margin, and she ended up defeating her Republican opponent in the general election by a 62-point margin. So go ahead, continue to beat those war drums, but people like Tulsi, they're not going to get less popular. If anything, you're only going to make Tulsi more popular. And in fact, you know what? I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of Tulsi Gabbard. Even though it's the case that the mainstream media are often critical of Donald Trump, well, apparently, since you decided to bomb Syria, which was an act that was both illegal and unconstitutional, mind you, they're all of a sudden praising Donald Trump and they are cheerleading on his efforts to lead us into another unnecessary, potentially never-ending war. So the first thing I want to talk about is how Brian Williams reacted 
to the news that Donald Trump decided to bomb Syria. We see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Um, and they are beautiful pictures of, uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over to this airfield. That was on the progressive network of MSNBC. You have someone just brazenly doing pro-war propaganda, drumming up support, showing video footage from the Pentagon, literally doing pro-government propaganda at the behest of Donald Trump. Look, if MSNBC has any shred of integrity left in them, which they don't, they would fire Brian Williams. And if Brian Williams was a respectable human being, he would resign because that was sickening. You are a gross person, Brian Williams. Those beautiful missiles ended human lives. They killed people. But you think they're beautiful. They're so pretty. You are sick. You're disgusting. Now, I wish I could tell you that Brian Williams was the only one that was praising Donald Trump's illegal war. But that's not the case. So according to FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, five top papers ran 18 opinion pieces praising Trump for bombing Syria, and zero were critical. And some criticized Trump, but because they weren't harsh enough. Now this includes media outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Daily News, and they explain... Cable news coverage was equally fawning in the hours immediately following the attack. MSNBC had on a seemingly never-ending string of military brass and reporters who uncritically repeated the assertion the strikes were proportional and limited. MSNBC didn't give a platform to a single dissenting voice until four hours after the attacks began, when host Chris Hayes, according to his own account, had on two guests opposed to the airstrikes in the midnight slot. CNN's resident serious military person, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, repeated over and over, seemingly on script, that the strikes were bold, tactical. CNN's Fareed Zakaria gushed praise on Trump Friday morning, telling host Allison Camarota, I think Donald Trump became president of the United States. This was a big moment. Due to the mostly bipartisan support for the airstrikes, it's somewhat predictable that corporate media would follow suit. No need to debate the morality or utility of the strikes because the scene played out per usual. Dictator commits an alleged human rights violation, the media calls on those in power to do something, and the ticking time bomb compels immediate action, lest we look weak on the global stage. Anything that deviates from this narrative is given token attention at best. They are doing pro-war propaganda at the behest of the Pentagon, at the behest of Donald Trump's White House, when they're supposed to be the fourth branch of government. And they've been referred to this unofficial branch of government because they're supposed to be another check on government tyranny. But what they're doing is they're rubber stamping anything that Donald Trump does, especially when it's the most harmful things. And if corporate media's agenda wasn't clear enough, the Washington Post literally published an article from a lobbyist for Raytheon. And Raytheon, if you didn't know, is a defense contractor that manufactures Tomahawk missiles. Donald Trump was basically praised universally from the media and both sides of the political spectrum. And as a result, this became very dangerous because Donald Trump now feels emboldened 
by uh, the praise that he's getting. And now he's trying to uh, rake in more praise by being more militaristic. So CNN explains the U.S. military dropped America's most powerful non-nuclear bomb on ISIS targets in Afghanistan on Thursday. The first time this type of weapon has been used in battle, according to U.S. officials. A GBU-43B Massive Ordnance Air Blast Bomb, MOAB, nicknamed the Mother of All Bombs, was dropped at 7.32 p.m. local time, according to four U.S. military officials with direct knowledge of the mission. A MOAB is a 30-foot-long, 23,600-pound GPS-guided munition. President Trump called it another successful job later Thursday. So, note the language that he's using there. He said this is another successful job, basically saying, alright guys, I, I did it again, I bombed another country, uh, I'm now looking for my praise, can I have that again? So that was when a 21,000 bomb, uh, 21,000 pound bomb explodes in the Afghanistan, Pakistan region, where at least 36 ISIS fighters have lost their life. That's right. Uh, welcome to the final hour of the week on Fox and Friends. And guess who's here? Do you recognize Geraldo him? Rivera. Barely. Hey, Geraldo. Geraldo, my video is black and white. Good morning. That is what freedom looks like. That's the red, white, and blue. Well, one of my favorite things in the 16 years I've been here at Fox News is watching bombs drop on bad guys. Now, because of the recklessness of the mainstream media, who's supposed to be a check on Trump's power, he feels emboldened. And here's my question. What's next? Is he going to drop a one kiloton uh, nuclear bomb? And then we're going to say, well, it was only a one kiloton bomb. Uh, and then will he start dropping more bigger bombs? I mean, where does this end? When does the media actually call out Donald Trump? It was the media, if I'm remembering correctly, that purported that Donald Trump was an unhinged, unfit presidential candidate. And yet now this unhinged, deranged maniac may be leading us into multiple new wars with Syria, with North Korea. And you're cheerleading him on, thus emboldening him. I mean, the media is so incredibly reckless. I don't I don't even like there are no words to really articulate just how destructive the media is as a force. And this is why trust in the mainstream media is at an all time low. They criticize Trump, but then as soon as he bombs the country, all of a sudden they love Donald Trump, they praise Donald Trump. This is sickening. If a government wants to do another war, then the media should be giving the utmost amount of scrutiny at that time, especially considering the U.S.'s track record with foreign invasions. But they're not doing that. They're complicit. The media is completely useless. With this level of propaganda, I don't see how we can ever avoid another unnecessary, never-ending war. I, I just don't. The Democratic Party purports to be the resistance against Donald Trump. Now, <laughs> the problem with that is that their so-called resistance has been tepid at best, and as of late, it just seems like they've thrown this whole notion of resistance out the window ever since Donald Trump decided to illegally and unconstitutionally bomb Syria. So even though they've stated that they 
wish that Donald Trump would have sought congressional approval before dropping these bombs. I mean, they've all come out basically to support and endorse Donald Trump's action in Syria. So Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer released a statement saying, making sure Assad knows that when he commits such despicable atrocities, he will pay a price is the right thing to do. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi states, Tonight's strike in Syria appears to be a proportional response to the regime's use of chemical weapons. Senator Bill Nelson says, I support the administration's strike on the airbase that launched the chemical attack. I hope this teaches President Assad not to use chemical weapons again. Senator Tim Kaine says Congress will work with the president, but his failure to seek congressional approval is unlawful. So to summarize, what Democrats are saying is we totally support Trump's decision, but, you know, just ask us for permission uh, next time, Trump, and we will give you the rubber stamp of approval, but just, you know, run it by us first. Way to resist, Democrats. You, you really are. I mean, as the opposition party to Donald Trump and the Republicans, wow. Way to show them, you know, way to... <laughs> Way to stand up for your base who wants you to unequivocally oppose Donald Trump when he's when he does things that destabilize the country and the world. But I mean, you're deciding with him. You're praising him here. Pathetic. The Democratic Party is pathetic. Now, I also want to show you what Fareed Zakaria said about Trump. Now, let me remind you that this is a celebrated liberal pundit. And he said this about Trump after Trump bombed Syria. What changed last night? I think uh, Donald Trump became president of the United States. I think this was actually a big moment because um, candidate Trump had said that he would never get involved in the uh, Syrian civil war. He told President Obama, you cannot do this without the authorization of Congress. He seemed unconcerned with global norms. President Trump recognized that the President of the United States does have to act to enforce international norms. So according to Fareed, you're not really the president until you illegally and unconstitutionally bomb another country. And I know that this is redundant because I keep saying illegally and unconstitutionally, but I really want to make it clear that what Donald Trump did was illegal and unconstitutional, and it was immoral, considering we didn't even do an investigation. So, I find this incredibly frustrating. I find the Democratic Party and their pundits and their apologists and their loyalists all pathetic for not standing up to a person who they called unhinged, someone who they said was unfit to be president. They are now cheerleading him on as he leads us into another unnecessary and potentially never-ending war. So, I want to share with you an article from The Guardian. So, journalist Owen Jones asks a really important question. He says, why are liberals now cheerleading a warmongering Trump? He states, so now we know what it takes for an unhinged, bigoted demagogue to win liberal applause. Just bypass a constitution to fire some missiles. It had seemed as though there was consensus among those in the anti-Trump camp. This man was a threat to U.S. democracy and world peace. The echoes of 1930s fascist leaders were frightening. This republic is in serious danger, declared conservative writer Andrew Sullivan on the eve of Trump's triumph. That this megalomaniac, pussy-grabbing, ban-the-Muslims, ex-reality TV star would soon control the world's most lethal military arsenal was chilling. It has taken less than three months for these illusions to be shattered. A man widely castigated as a proto-fascist only needed to drop bombs without observing due process. Let's examine what is being said about Trump now. A press he denounced as liars and enemies of the people are eating out of his hands, tiny or otherwise. 
Trump reacted viscerally to the images of the death of innocent children in Syria, declared Mark Sandler in the New York Times. The original headline on that article since amended, On Syria Attack, Trump's Heart Came First. Wow. So the man who once bragged to a baying audience that he would tell five-year-old Syrian refugees to their faces that the U.S. would not offer them safety is now driven by his heart. Touching indeed, the moral dimensions of leadership had penetrated Trump's Oval Office, declared the Washington Post's David Ignatius. In Britain, liberal and conservative columnists alike, plus Tory, liberal Democrat, and labor politicians applauded the raid. Trump is now showing leadership, apparently. Leadership is shown by a man widely feared to be A, unhinged, B, demagogic, and C, authoritarian, dropping bombs in defiance of his country's democratic process. Trump is now emboldened. The pundit are applauding him, his critics have praised him, his appalling approval ratings will surely edge up. Further military action by a man who has repeatedly bragged about disrespecting the norms of war will surely follow. He bypassed the Constitution this time and will be praised for it, so why shouldn't he the next time? And if war comes with North Korea, what will the liberal pundits do? Some will cheerlead him all over again. Where's your compassion for the suffering of North Korea? A man who backed torture and castigated his predecessors for not stealing Iraq and Syria's oil is being rehabilitated by the liberal pundits as a man of compassion, a man of strength, with the resolve that Obama apparently lacked. Dozens were killed by a U.S. strike against the school in Syria last month, largely unmourned by Trump's new apologists, as were the 30 civilians killed in Trump's failed Yemen raid in January. Children among them. There are children in Yemen too, you know, and they're being slaughtered by U.S. and U.K.-backed Saudi warplanes. Trump's liberal apologists won't cry for them or even acknowledge their existence. They are apparently unpeople, rather than kids clutching teddy bears as Western-backed bombs rain on their heads. So that was a very powerful article, so I will link to that in the description box. I would highly encourage you to check it out and read the full thing. Uh, Owen makes such a strong argument here. And this is really dangerous. We're already seeing just a week later, in fact, less than a week later, really, that Donald Trump is, in fact, emboldened by this because he is now reaping praise uh, from the Democratic Party establishment. He is receiving praise from the media. And now he dropped the biggest non-nuclear bomb possible. And he's now posturing against North Korea, basically threatening to bomb them if they, in fact, carry out another uh, nuclear missile test. And look, there's no better way to drum up support than to start another war. And Donald Trump is now becoming privy to this fact, and Democrats are completely complicit in anything he does war-related. And it's it's very troubling, because they claim that they want to resist Donald Trump, but the problem is that you can't resist him if you're going to give him the green light to go ahead and bomb Syria. All that they're resisting him on is the fact that he didn't seek out congressional authority for this. But you still approve. You still approve. You would give him congressional authority. So, yeah, it is a problem that he didn't see congressional authority. But if you would give him congressional authority, then what you're trying to do is really sneaky. You're trying to pretend as though you're against Donald Trump, but really you're not resisting shit, Democrats. You're applauding him. Fareed Zakaria, who was a well-respected political pundit, said that Donald Trump is now the president because he killed people. When are we ever going to wake up? Or in fact, uh, I don't think we're ever going to wake up. I, I shouldn't even ask that question. The answer is rhetorical. We're never going to wake up. Because even though Iraq happened not that long ago, we're willing to do the same thing all over again. 
You are rewarding Donald Trump for bombing a country. They did not attack us. This was an offensive move. And he's going to do it again because of the uh, Democratic Party establishment's willingness to be complicit with this. They are pathetic. They are useless and should be ashamed of themselves. Since President Trump took office, he's been plagued by dismal approval ratings, but he recently learned that you can become exponentially more popular by simply just bombing another country. So we saw how this move emboldened Trump. He used what we call the mother of all bombs, which is the largest non-nuclear missile in Afghanistan, and now he is putting us this close to war with North Korea. So NBC News explains the U.S. is prepared to launch a preemptive strike with conventional weapons against North Korea should officials become convinced that North Korea is about to follow through with a nuclear weapons test, multiple senior U.S. intelligence officials told NBC News. North Korea has warned that a big event is near, and U.S. officials say signs point to a nuclear test that could come as early as this weekend. The intelligence officials told NBC News that the U.S. has positioned two destroyers capable of shooting Tomahawk cruise missiles in the region, one just 300 miles from the North North Korean nuclear test site. American heavy bombers are also positioned in Guam to attack North Korea should it be necessary and earlier this week the Pentagon announced that the USS Carl Vinson aircraft carrier group was being diverted to the area. The US strike could include missiles and bombs, cyber and special operations on the ground. The danger of such an attack by the U.S. is that it could provoke the volatile and unpredictable North Korean regime to launch its own blistering attack on its southern neighbor. The U.S. is aware that simply preparing an attack, even if it will only be launched if there is an imminent North Korean action, increases the danger of provoking a large conflict, multiple sources told NBC News. The threat of a preemptive strike comes on the same day the U.S. announced the use of its MOAB, or Mother of All Bombs in Afghanistan, attacking underground facilities, and on the heels of U.S. missile strikes on a Syrian airbase last week, a strike that took place while President Trump was meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago. Implementation of the preemptive U.S. plans, according to multiple U.S. officials, depends centrally on consent of the South Korean government. The sources stress that Seoul has got to be persuaded that action is worth the risk, as there is universal concern that any military move might provoke a North Korean attack, even a conventional attack, across the demilitarized zone. The Trump administration, emboldened by their punishing strike on Syria and by a successful meeting with the Chinese leader, hopes that the Chinese will use their considerable leverage to dissuade Kim Jong-un and his government from moving ahead with their nuclear program. So understand what he is doing here. He is provoking a madman, Kim Jong-un. One madman is provoking another, uh, and he is threatening Kim Jong-un. And when Trump took a U.S. military vessel and diverted it to um, an area close to North Korea, well, Kim Jong-un threatened war with the U.S. Now, I'm not too concerned with North Korea and what they do because Kim Jong-un talks a lot of game. He talks a lot. He's never followed through with any of his threats. However, he is so unhinged and deranged that I do worry about the people in South Korea. I worry about the people in Seoul. If he launched a nuclear weapon, would he reach the United States? Probably not. Do they have the capabilities to reach Japan? I don't know. Uh, but could he reach Seoul? 
yeah, they could fire a weapon into Seoul, into South Korea, and it would be absolutely devastating. So Donald Trump is egging on a madman, uh, and he's threatening military action when Kim Jong-un said that there will be war if, you, uh, if he sees any more provocation. So Donald Trump is doing this just to act tough. He's emboldened by, you know, this recent strike in Syria, and he wants to invade a country that didn't attack us again. Now, look, am I, am I okay with Kim Jong-un doing these nuclear weapons tests? Am I okay with the proliferation of nuclear weapons? Absolutely not. I think that we need to move away from nuclear weapons. All of us need to unilaterally disarm uh, around the world Russia. The United States, India, Pakistan, we all need to disarm and get rid of our stockpiles of nuclear weapons. So I don't approve of Kim Jong-un doing this. But Kim Jong-un, I mean, we have no grounds to invade that country unless they actually attacked us. So by him testing a weapon, do I absolutely um, denounce that and disagree with that? Absolutely. But I don't want a war with another country. We never make matters better. And look, what they're going to do is talk about the humanitarian issue. Look, if you're against invading Korea, when you see that they have people in basically what is tantamount to concentration camps, well, you must be a bad person. But really what they fail to realize is that if we, if we invade North Korea, if we bomb North Korea... More people will die from that war than they're dying now, potentially, in concentration camps. The North Korean government, they have no leverage. They have no power. They're only existing today, and they haven't collapsed because they're being propped up by the Chinese government. So what you need to do is work out a diplomatic solution with China. Have China deal with it and make it their issue. But instead, Donald Trump is choosing to take matters into his own hands because... You can get incredibly popular. Your approval rating could potentially soar if you bomb countries. This is where we're at. And as long as the media and both political parties continue to cheer him on as he just wreaks havoc on the world and destabilizes the entire international sphere, it's going to be incredibly scary to see what's going to unfold over the course of the next couple of years. This guy is as deranged and unhinged as we anticipated that he would be. The problem is just that the people who were claiming this, Democrats, are now supporting his war efforts. We need to say it loudly. We need to say it clearly. No more wars. The American people does not consent to another war. We don't want our tax dollars to fund another war. We don't want a war with Korea. We're in the Middle East in, in as much states as I think we've ever been in. I mean, what? We're, we're droning Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Syria, and we're just outright bombing them now. Uh, we are currently occupying Iraq and Afghanistan. How many wars do we have to start? How many foreign policy blunders do we have to have until our leaders wake up? The Democratic Party establishment has repeatedly demonstrated that they want nothing to do with progressives, and even though they continue to shun us, they make it seem as though we're the bad guys for not wanting to unite behind a warmongering, corrupt corporatist party. Well, I say, no, there will be no unity until you actually become a party of the grassroots, a party of the working class. And this argument that we should unite behind the Democratic Party in order to defeat Donald Trump well, what I say to that is, no, there will be no unity if they continue doing business as usual. And furthermore, 
It's absurd for them to ask for unity when they've done nothing to correct the things that made me and many other progressives want to leave the party in the first place. So, for example, they still have yet to make primaries open. This disenfranchises independent progressives, and it's not acceptable. They also refused to vote down a ban on lobbyist contributions. They're now cheerleading the efforts of President Trump, this time to lead us into a war with Syria. And they continue to take money from large multinational corporations and billionaires, so they don't want to represent us. And they also refuse to support policies that would literally save lives, like a Medicare for all healthcare system. And furthermore, they continue to pat us on the head and insist that they're listening to us, but really, they're not listening. So they constantly brag about this so-called unity commission, where they allow uh, surrogates of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton to kind of get together and vote on reforms that they want the DNC to implement. Now, this sounds great in theory. However, the problem is that they didn't give Bernie Sanders an equal amount of votes. They gave Hillary Clinton and Tom Perez more delegates than Bernie Sanders. So any reforms that progressives want carried out by the DNC can be easily rejected by this unity commission. So they don't want change. They continue to shun us. They still don't even admit that they rigged the primary. Yet, we're supposed to get behind this corporatist party. Well, I say, no way. We are not going to unite behind a party until these issues are corrected, until they choose to represent the people. And furthermore, I have yet to see one Democrat coherently explain what it is the party actually stands for. And in a segment that I posted to YouTube on March 21st, I talked about how Bernie Sanders also couldn't tell you what they stood for. He states, you're asking a good question, and I can't give you a definitive answer. Certainly, there are people in the Democratic party who want to maintain the status quo, they would rather go down with the Titanic so long as they have first-class seats. So with a statement like that, it's very clear that Bernie Sanders is dissatisfied with the current state of the Democratic Party. So after hearing him say that, well, you would see how I would be surprised to find a headline about how Bernie Sanders will be going on a unity tour with DNC chairman Tom Perez. So Mallory Shelbourne of The Hill explains, beginning April 7th, Sanders and Perez will hit the trail in so-called red and purple states, including Kentucky, Maine, Florida, Utah, Montana, Nevada, Arizona, and Nebraska. Now, what's the point of this tour, you ask? Well, according to The Hill's Brandon Carter, Sanders and Perez will use the trip to drum up Democratic enthusiasm for special and midterm elections on the horizon. This is part of our effort to revitalize the Democratic Party to turn it into a grassroots party to tell people that Donald Trump's agenda is not what he promised them, Sanders told The Post. During that campaign, Tom said the Democratic Party had to be refocused, had to be rebuilt, and I trust that he will keep those promises, Sanders said. The fact that he's prepared to travel with me around the country and pick up half the cost of this is a positive sign. Okay, so, um... My initial reaction to this story was that I was I was really disappointed in this because I really respect Bernie Sanders. I don't have to tell you uh, how much I love Bernie Sanders. I continue to cover him because I think Bernie Sanders, what he's doing is actually important. And I think it's having a positive impact on the country. I mean, he's talking about free college tuition and New York implemented a free college tuition bill. He's talking about a single payer healthcare system. And now that is on the national agenda. People are actually talking about it. So I really do feel as though Bernie Sanders, in continuously elevating these issues, he's doing something that is good for the country. So I respect and admire Bernie Sanders. But when it comes to this particular issue, when it comes to the unity tour, I'm not with Bernie on this issue. I unfortunately disagree with him because I don't think this is the right strategy. Because in going on this unity tour with Tom Perez, 
You're essentially rewarding the Democratic Party for bad behavior. I mean, what have they changed, Bernie? Uh, you say that you trust Tom Perez, and Tom Perez claims uh, that he wants to make the DNC um, a party, uh, or he wants to make the Democratic Party a party that has a 50-state uh, strategy, yet he abandoned James Thompson in Kansas. So how is it that we can put our trust in someone as obviously corrupt as Tom Perez, who flip-flopped on whether or not the primary was rigged. He said that, yeah, the primary was in fact unfair. It was rigged against Bernie Sanders and his supporters. And then hours later, he said he misspoke. I mean, how can you trust someone like that, Bernie? But to me, I feel as though Bernie Sanders, his heart is in the right place. And what he's doing is he's trying to influence Tom Perez to become more grassroots. He thinks that by going on tour with Tom Perez, this would somehow show him how to be grassroots. But Bernie... They're, they're not a grassroots party. They don't want to be grassroots. And if they did, they would have voted down or they would have voted to approve the ban on lobbyist contributions. So I just can't help but feel as though Bernie Sanders is allowing them to use him as a tool to herd people into the Democratic Party when they're inevitably going to betray us again. And I mean, when I see talk of Bernie Sanders going on a unity tour with one of the most corrupt politicians in the country who helped the DNC smear Bernie Sanders... I just feel as though Bernie Sanders may be surrendering to the Democratic Party establishment, and that makes me feel incredibly uneasy. He's saying, you know, that you need to reform when it comes to policies X, Y, and Z, but yet I'm still going to encourage my supporters to unify behind you even before you make those very necessary changes. And that's not okay, Bernie. And I think that this is one thing that continues to frustrate me about Bernie Sanders. I think he's too nice. And I mean, I don't think that this is the first time that Bernie Sanders shot himself in the foot because during the beginning of his campaign, he said, you know, I'm tired of hearing about Hillary Clinton's damn emails. But the problem with that is you kind of give her a free pass for doing something that's incredibly shady. I mean, nobody ever has set up a private email server in their own homes. That's unprecedented. So I think that's something that shady needs to be talked about. And look, Credit where credit is due. Bernie Sanders did this because he wanted the emphasis of the political campaigns of the Democratic Party, all of them, to be focused on policy. But, I mean, you have to call out politicians when they do things that are brazenly corrupt. And furthermore, when it was very clear that the DNC was, in fact, trying to sabotage his campaign, I really wish Bernie Sanders would have played a more dirty game like they were playing. I mean, when Donald Trump saw that the RNC was trying to do some type of shenanigans against him that may disadvantage him, what did he do? He threatened to run as an independent. So, I wish Bernie Sanders would have done something like that, and he continues to instill confidence in the Democratic Party when they've done nothing to reinforce that confidence. So, I mean, when it comes to the policies, Bernie Sanders is always on point, but when it comes to political strategy, I feel as though Bernie Sanders is just... He's too nice. He's way too nice. They continuously exploit him and take advantage of him. And he's allowing them to do this. Bernie, you've got you've to start actually being tough. You've got to tell the Democratic Party that you refuse to help them out until they actually start reforming and listening to you. Because they continue to trot out you and Keith Ellison and you just take it. They say, you know, this is what we're like. We're like these progressives, but behind the scenes, we're, st we're still taking money from large multinational corporations. We're still refusing to back a Medicare for All system because we're taking money from the health insurance industry. And that's not right, Bernie. They're betraying you. And by proxy of betraying you, they're betraying the voters and potential people who would be voting with the Democratic Party, independent progressives. So you cannot give them permission to do this, Bernie. And it's just... 
I wish that he would stop being so nice. It's it's incredibly frustrating. This has been one thing that has consistently frustrated me with Bernie Sanders, even though I love him when it comes to policy. And I want to highlight one thing that Bernie said. So he states that um, the fact that Tom Perez is prepared to travel with me around the country and pick up half the cost is a positive sign. That, to me, was very surprising. Bernie, you mean to tell me that they're not just footing the entire bill? You're the most popular politician in the country. They should be kissing your ass right now. They should be on their hands and knees begging you to tour the country with them. And they're not even paying for you to uh, tour the country? This is absurd to me, Bernie. They're using you. So, I mean, by going on this unity tour, it just feels like Bernie is suggesting that we should rejoin the Democratic Party before they've changed a single thing. And that's not going to happen. We don't trust that they're going to change. There will be no unity until the Democratic Party actually implements the reforms that will bring independent progressives back into the party. And so, by you doing this, Bernie, it, it, it tells them that everything they're doing right now is okay. And that's that's not acceptable. So I totally disagree with Bernie Sanders here. Does this mean that I'm abandoning Bernie Sanders and that I don't like Bernie Sanders? No, I disagree with him strategically. Bernie Sanders has got to toughen up. He's got to actually put them in their place. He needs to show them tough love. I get it. You know, they're the main opposition to Donald Trump. And you've got to try to at least put in a minimal attempt to reform the Democratic Party, but this isn't how you do it, Bernie Sanders. You show them tough love. You leave them out in the cold and allow them to lose a couple of elections if they're actually going to continue to be corrupt because they're never going to change if you continue to reward their bad behavior, Bernie. That's not the way that things work. You have to discipline them and you have to show discipline and be tough and stop allowing them to walk all over you. It's just so frustrating. But I mean... We're not, we're not going to unite behind the party. And furthermore, if they will be campaigning in these red states, they better not try to trot out these Republican-like candidates who are marginally different than the conservative candidates that are running in these red states because we want a real progressive. I mean, James Thompson is a progressive that ran in Kansas and nearly won if it wasn't for the DNC completely ignoring him and refusing to give him resources. So, Bernie, you've got to toughen up actually show them some, some tough love or just show them that you're done with their bullshit because we know that you know that they are not a grassroots party and that what they've done to betray the American voters is unforgivable at this point. So until they change, there should be no unity, Bernie. You should not be going on this unity tour. So this is incredibly disappointing to see Bernie Sanders giving in to them. For those of you who don't know, there was actually a special election that took place in Kansas recently, and a Berniecrat nearly won this election. Uh, so his name was James Thompson, and he was basically any and everything that you like about Bernie Sanders. He supported uh, tuition-free colleges and university, a single-payer healthcare system, uh, and did I mention that he almost won in Kansas? <laughs> so this could have been amazing but part of the reason why he didn't win was because the dnc who is supposed to be helping candidates completely abandoned him now journalist james peck of the guardian actually wrote a scathing article about the dnc explaining how they gave james the cold shoulder 
Since losing the presidency to a Cheeto-hued reality TV host, the Democratic Party's leadership has made it clear that it would rather keep losing than entertain even the slightest whiff of New Deal-style social democracy. The Bernie Sanders wing might bring grassroots energy and, if the polls are to be believed, popular ideas, but their redistributive policies pose too much of a threat to the party's big donors to ever be allowed on the agenda. The Democrats demonstrated this once more this week when, in a special election triggered by Trump's tapping of Joe Pompeo for CIA director, a Bernicrat named James Thompson came painfully close to winning a Kansas congressional seat that had been red for over two decades and his party didn't even try to help him. In a Reddit AMA, Thompson said he was inspired to run by Bernie and talked about progressive values like universal health care, education, and a $15 minimum wage. He also spoke in favor of taxing and legalizing marijuana, regulating Wall Street, and overturning Citizens United. It's no surprise he received the endorsement of Our Revolution, the progressive political action organization spun out of Sanders' candidacy. Given our current political climate, you'd think the Democrats would have jumped at the chance to take back a congressional seat and demonstrate opposition to Trump, but you'd be wrong. While Thompson managed to raise $292,000 without his party's help, 95% of which came from individuals, neither the DNC, DCCC, nor even the Kansas Democratic Party would help him grow that total in any substantial way. His campaign requested $20,000 from the state Democratic Party and was denied. They later relented and gave him $3,000, according to the FEC. The party had about $145,000 on hand. The National Democratic Party gave him nothing until the day before the election, when it graced him with some live calls and robocalls. He lost by 7 percentage points. In an interview with the Washington Post, Perez confirmed the DNC would not be giving Thompson a dime. We can make progress in Kansas, he said. There are thousands of elections every year, though. Can we invest in all of them? That would require a major increase in funds. Fact check. The DNC has a fund just for congressional elections, of which there are just 10 this year. Contrast this with what Perez said just a few months earlier when he promised a 50-state strategy complete with rural outreach and organizers in every zip code. In a post-victory interview with NPR, he specifically name-checked Kansas as a place Democrats could win. In defending their decision, party mouthpieces have taken the absurd line that giving Thompson money would have actually hurt his chances of winning because then everyone would have known he's a Democrat and Kansans hate Democrats. You do not get to single digits in a district like this if you're a nationalized Democrat, DCCC Communications Director Meredith Kelly told the Huffington Post. End of story. That's just the way it is. There are just certain races where it is not helpful to be attached to the national D.C. Democrats. End of story, idiot. By refusing to fund the campaigns of anyone but centrist establishment shills, the Democratic Party aims to make the Berniecrats' lack of political viability a self-fulfilling prophecy, starve their campaigns of resources so they can't win, then point to said losses as examples of why they can't win. Make no mistake about it, Tom Perez has been DNC chair for little more than a month and he's already going back on his promise to implement a 50-state strategy. How do you think you're ever going to take back Congress if you're not going to focus on all states, including red and purple states, and you're going to shun progressives at every chance you get? I mean, think of the line of reasoning. The Democratic Party didn't want to donate to a candidate and help this candidate because they were embarrassed of their own party in Kansas. 
they really think that the American people are stupid. They think Kansan voters uh, that are progressive are stupid. They look at the policies, and since James had progressive policies, that's why he nearly defeated a Republican in the deep red state of Kansas. So, I believe that this is something that is so embarrassing. Tom Perez should publicly apologize for mishandling the situation. But, I mean, he's not going to do that because he's happy with the outcome. You see, if they get someone like James Thompson in office, then he threatens the cash train of the Democratic Party. Because if you don't take money from large corporations, then you're not going to be a puppet for large corporations. So... They didn't want him to win, and they continue to do this. They shoot themselves in the foot. They would rather have Republicans be in control because, like I've been saying time and again, they don't want to win. They know that they they can change nothing and still win eventually if they just wait out the storm because they know people will hate Donald Trump and the Republicans so much that we don't give a shit how corporatist, how corrupt these Democrats are. We're, we're willing to vote for anyone who isn't Donald Trump. That's what they're waiting on. I mean, it worked before uh, with George W. Bush, although, you know, Obama certainly ran as a populist. Uh, but they are going to do the same strategy and not change a single thing. So when I see Bernie Sanders going on a unity tour with them, as this story breaks, I find it so frustrating. Bernie, it's time progressives take a stand and defend themselves and actually stand up to the Democratic Party bullies who continuously give progressives the middle finger and shun us at every chance they get. So this is so frustrating that we were this close and the DNC botched it. I, I fully blame them for this. I absolutely blame them for this. They waited till the last minute and look at what turned, what, look at what happened. They wanted to wait, you know, they waited that long and they did something on the last day just so that way they could have plausible deniability. They could say, oh, well, look, you know, we, we tried to help them, but, you know, you just came up short. No. This is a failure that the DNC must own. Reinvoking Cold War era anti-Russian hysteria hasn't just been the Democratic Party's main method of attacking Donald Trump. It's also been a tactic employed by the media as well. And they do this because Russian uh, hysteria... It's sensationalistic, and sensationalism sells. It makes them money. Now, if you believe that Hillary Clinton lost because of Russia and not because she was a terrible candidate, then that implies that the Democratic Party has to do nothing. They need to make no changes, no adjustments. They don't have to change course whatsoever uh, because it wasn't their fault. Had it not been for Russia hacking into the emails of the DNC and John Podesta, then Hillary Clinton would have won. Now, let's forget about the fact that Democrats have been consistently losing. I mean, they lost the House in 2010, the Senate in 2014, and the White House in 2016. And also, they're wiped out at the state level. They're wiped out at the governor level. So, I mean, this allows them to not have any introspection whatsoever. So that's all a problem. But the main problem with this strategy is that it's actually influencing Donald Trump to take a demonstrably tougher stance towards Russia. And this comes at a time when tensions are already high, when we should be trying to normalize our relationship with Russia. But I mean, in spite of the obvious danger our politicians and the media are putting us in by encouraging an unhinged madman to be tough on a nuclear power, well, even though Donald Trump just illegally and unconstitutionally bombed their ally, this story still doesn't seem to be losing any steam. And Rachel Maddow, a once respected progressive journalist, seems to be cashing in on this sensationalism the most. So The Intercept did a quantitative analysis of her recent coverage, and what they found out was absolutely 
stunning. The extent that Rachel Maddow covers Russia is all we already know it's high, right? But what they found out will blow your mind. They explained The Intercept conducted a quantitative study of all 28 The Rachel Maddow Show episodes in the six-week period between February 20th and March 31st. Russia-focused segments accounted for 53% of these broadcasts. That figure is conservative, excluding segments where Russia was discussed but was not the overarching topic. In 16 of the 28 episodes analyzed, Russia comprised either all or a substantial part of the A block, the show's headlining and far lengthiest segment, which often amounts to nearly half the show, excluding commercials. Maddow's Russia coverage has dwarfed the time devoted to other top issues, including Trump's escalating crackdown on undocumented immigrants, 1.3% of coverage, Obamacare repeal, 3.8%, the legal battle over Trump's Muslim ban, 5.6%, a surge of anti-GOP activism and town hall since Trump took office, 5.8%, and Trump administration scandals and stumbles, 11%. Maddow's focus on Russia has helped her ratings, which are at their highest level since 2008. So out of a total of 1,191 minutes, 640 minutes, a majority of the time has been dedicated to Russia. This includes focus on Russian oligarchs, Michael Flynn. And let me remind you that Rachel Maddow is the one that started the lie, and it is a lie, that Bernie Sanders supporters only disliked Hillary Clinton because they were subjected to Russian propaganda about Hillary Clinton and fake news. So we didn't dislike Hillary Clinton because of her policies, because we're really dumb. We only disliked Hillary Clinton uh, because we decided to read Macedonian clickbait websites that probably came from uh, the directive of the Kremlin uh, to do fake news about Hillary Clinton. She's the one that started this live. So she is getting a huge ratings boost because of this, but it comes at the expense of her credibility among progressives. Yep. The thing is that she doesn't care. You know, it, it's money over integrity if you're Rachel Maddow. Now, just to show how bombastic she's been and how outrageous her rhetoric has been, the Intercept also compiled a video segment that I have to show you. And here's the question. Is the new president going to take those troops out? In Russia. Russian. Russia. Russia. Russian. Russia. 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 Of whether or not Russia had help, whether they had Confederates inside the Trump campaign when they launched this attack. But every day, and every day I leave my show and I think I'm going to be talking about something else. But every day, over the course of the news cycle, a new piece of it falls in place. We're about to find out if the new president of our country is going to do what Russia wants. If the, the presidency is effectively a Russian op, right? If the American presidency right now is the product of collusion between the Russian intelligence services and an American campaign, I mean, that is so profoundly big. This is not part of American politics. This is not you know, partisan warfare between Republicans and Democrats. This is international warfare against our country. She's using words like international warfare. Rachel Maddow is completely unhinged. She is showing us that if it makes money, she is willing to cover it. That's all she cares about, getting the ratings. And it, I find this really disheartening because when you look at the Rachel Maddow Facebook page, for example, and the videos that she's posting, a lot of her su uh, her supporters and viewers are cheering her on. They're saying, wow, you know, I, I, I've been such a fan of her throughout the course of her Russia coverage when she's trying to take any and everything about Russia and make it into a big story, even if there's no evidence. 
So she is deceiving her audience in order to get views. And we know that she tries to do this because <laughs> this was made very clear when she hyped up the uh, Trump tax return story and then it was nothing. So Rachel Maddow is someone who we just can't trust. And this is sad because she was one of the few people who I considered an ally in the mainstream media. But we cannot trust Rachel Maddow. She should be ashamed of herself. She is not a progressive. She is not a progressive at all. What she's doing is incredibly harmful and she is misleading the American people. Democratic Congressman Denny Heck attended a town hall event at a community college in Olympia, Washington, and throughout the course of this event, one of my viewers named Ben asked him why he refused to support H.R. 676, which is the bill that would expand Medicare for everyone, effectively giving the United States a single-payer healthcare system. And his answer was incredibly absurd. Take a look. The most common reason for bankruptcy in this country is medical expenses. People go bankrupt from medical bills all the time, all across this country. And there's a solution to this that the rest of the modern world has somehow figured out. It's called single-payer healthcare. And we actually have single-payer healthcare in America right now. It's called Medicare. There's a bill in the House right now, it's called H.R. 676, that would extend Medicare to cover everybody. To cover everybody. So everyone's covered single payer. Health care is guaranteed. And you have chosen to not co-sponsor this bill, and I would like to know why. But you're right. I've declined to become a co-sponsor of H.R. Uh, 6776. And I, and I do so because I frankly don't think it's fully formed. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, well, you shake your head, give me a chance. Okay? It, you know, it's okay that we disagree. I'm okay on that. Uh, first of all, the Medicare for All Act would in fact take a part of what many people consider to be a part of their Medicare away from them. And that's the 400,000 people in the state who have Medicare Advantage, it would be eliminated under the Medicare for All Act. There'd be no Medicare Advantage. Um, secondly, there are about 20% of all hospitals in this country that are private, for-profit. They would essentially be immediately illegal. And oh, by the way, so is 70% of nursing homes, which are for-profit. And the reality is, that there is nothing in the proposal which deals either, for example, with Medicare Advantage or with how is it that we would make this incredible transition from basically saying one in five hospitals you no longer have a legal corporate uh, governance structure or the 70% of all nursing homes. There's no plan for how we get from here to there. But lastly and most importantly, if you talk to hospitals and providers, as I do all the time, they would tell you that Medicare reimbursement rates in and of themselves are not sustainable. That they cannot be a sustainable enterprise on the basis of Medicare reimbursement. And there is nothing, there is nothing in 
this resolution, HR 676, which would plan for the migration from Medicare as we know it today, which the bill says it applies to everybody, which, which doesn't provide for a means of making a sustainable delivery of healthcare. Those are just three, frankly, more or less off the top of my head, reasons why I've declined to, to sign on to the bill. But I will end where I began. Uh, I think we're in a much better country, a much stronger country, if more people have healthcare. We've cut the number of uninsured in this nation in half. No, by the way, you couldn't be more correct about bankruptcy rate, except for that as we've cut in half, so bankruptcy's gone down. And I think that's a good thing, and I think we need to continue on that trajectory. So, in a nutshell, he doesn't support this bill because he doesn't think it's fully formed. So, he has three main complaints with this bill. So, first, he says that it would eliminate Medicare Advantage. And? <laughs> I don't see why that's a problem because it there would be no need for Medicare Advantage because Medicare Advantage, for those of you that don't know, it's basically, it's a form of private insurance uh, where private insurance companies contract medical services out with Medicare. So this would be eliminated because it wouldn't be necessary. So because it's good now doesn't necessarily mean that it would still be necessary if we did have a Medicare for all system. So this doesn't even make sense. Now, second of all, he says that he's against this bill because 20% of all hospitals and 70% of all nursing homes are for profit. So, in other words, he is putting the profits of these businesses, and they are businesses, above the healthcare needs of the American people, above the healthcare needs of his constituents. And that I find really appalling because if you claim to care about medical bankruptcies, which he talked about during this town hall, then why would you say, you know what, I don't want a single-payer system because these companies need to make money. I mean, that's egregious to me. That's appalling. If you really care about healthcare and don't want the American people to go bankrupt, then you would move to a system where companies can't profit off of the healthcare that they provide to people. I mean, you can't economize something that can lead to people dying or going bankrupt. It's just, it's not acceptable. There are certain things that are off the table that shouldn't be profitable. Now, third, he says that Medicare reimburse, uh, reimbursements are not sustainable. So in other words, we have no way to pay for a Medicare for all system. We've heard this same song and dance time and again. You know, for whatever reason, we can find money to spend $500,000 on missiles, and you uh, you know, 59 of them to be exact, uh, we can continuously fund the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. We can fund drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Syria. But yet, when it comes to providing our citizens with health care, we just don't have the money, you guys. This is a Democratic congressman effectively making this argument. We spend more per capita on health care than countries with a single-payer healthcare system. So if everyone has insurance, all of our medical bills will be paid, which will lower the cost for everyone. The reason why costs are so high in the first place is because people don't have insurance. Or if they do have insurance uh, that doesn't cover certain things, then they can't pay their medical bills. So the cost goes up for everyone else. So basically, all of the reasons that he's against this healthcare bill are completely irrational. His reasoning doesn't make sense. It just doesn't add up. And if you're wondering why it doesn't add up, if you're wondering why his explanation uh, for not supporting a bill that would dramatically improve the lives of all American citizens uh, seems a little bit weird, 
I'll tell you why he doesn't support HR 676. So when you look at his campaign contributions, it starts to make sense. So the insurance industry is his number one donor. They gave him $90,000 and hey, look at that. He also took $50,000 from health professionals. Now, he also takes a lot of money from the big banks and defense contractors too. But I mean, when you consider the amount of money given to him by the insurance industry, mostly through PACs, it's very clear why he won't get on board with this bill. And you see, if he supports this bill, well, then the private insurance industry goes under. It's, it's no longer necessary if all citizens have health insurance provided to them by the government. And what happens? He loses out on a substantial portion of campaign contributions. So he wants to make sure that he gets elected and part of getting elected is continuing to rake in money from the health insurance industry and the insurance industry and the health sector as they rip off the American people. Now, thankfully, one of his constituents actually called him out on this. And how can politicians represent the people if they are getting paid exorbitant amounts of money to represent the interests of corporations. So I say this with all due respect. When your constituents may look and see that insurance companies are some of the greatest donors to your campaign, um, then one might question, well, is that why he voted against single payer and for something that is really, as, as uh, the lady up there said, that it uh, benefits the insurance companies. These are the things that we have to address because otherwise you lose the trust of the people because they see one thing and if one thing is being said, there has to be some congruity. So I, I felt that it, it, uh, it was notable to be able to bring that uh, to your attention. Well, and, 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 uh, as I said at the outset, I'm a big boy. I, I can take that kind of input, but the only thing I can say won't satisfy you. Uh, I have intermittently been in and out of public office and in positions of public trust my whole adult life. And I ask only to be judged on the basis of that 40-year track record. I believe in my heart of hearts and with good conscience that I approach this job and make decisions on the basis of integrity and that which I believe is in the best interest of the people of the district. And if, if you conclude otherwise based on campaign finance reports, you're free to do that, candidate. But uh, I, I sleep well at night. I work real hard for the people of this district and I'm more than willing to subject myself to their judgment on an every-year basis. I'm just fine with that. And I do appreciate it. So clearly, if you couldn't tell, he had no response to being called out on his brazen corruption. He said, um, I make decisions on the basis of integrity and what's in the best interest of the people in my district. And then he ends by saying, I sleep well at night and I work hard for the people in this district. Do you now? <laughs> you say that you want to end medical bankruptcies. He talks about this in this same town hall. But yet, you are refusing to sign on to a bill that would end medical bankruptcies once and for all. You're ignoring your citizens here, and you sleep well at night. You have integrity, you claim. You don't have integrity. You are choosing to side with your donors 
over your constituents. This is what Ben wanted me to share. So he said, one way or another, I just want my representative to support universal health care. It's a moral issue. If you can't support it now when there's little chance of this legislation passing, then how can I trust him to really fight for it when the Dems are back in power and he's sitting at the negotiating table representing my district? This is your constituent, Denny. Your constituent. You purport to represent this person. You claim to have integrity, but yet, when your constituents applauded HR 676 when it was brought to your attention, uh... You ignore, you ignore what they want. You're ignoring what they want because you have donors that are telling you to do otherwise because you want campaign contributions to continue to flow into your campaign. Look, to all of Congressman Heck's constituents, he doesn't want to support you. It's very clear. So what you have to do now is primary him. He's not looking out for you. And this is a loathsome individual. He is not fighting for you. You clearly want this. I mean, in the state of Washington, they're neighbors to my state in Oregon, and you guys are liberal. You may be more liberal than Oregon on certain issues, and of course, they want single pair. So by him going against his own constituents, uh, look, you were voted in to represent them. So if you're not going to do that, it's time for you to get the hell out of office or get the heck out of office. I couldn't resist. I initially hadn't planned on talking about uh, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer's Hitler mishap because this is a story uh, that <laughs> the media has beaten like a dead horse. And so, you know, it's, it's so redundant. They talk about it time and again. However, there's a component of the story that I think is important that nobody else is really talking about. So I wanted to address that because I think that with this mishap, it gives us some insight into the true intentions of the Trump White House. So for those of you who haven't seen this yet, all two of you, uh, this is what happened. We didn't use chemical weapons in World War II. You know, you had a, you know, someone as despicable as Hitler who didn't even sink to the, to the, to using chemical weapons. Someone as despicable as Hitler didn't even sink to using chemical weapons. I mean... <laughs> The level of stupidity that he's exhibiting here is just downright offensive. Like, I'm literally offended that someone working in the White House is this stupid, is this ignorant of a fact about World War II that we learn in elementary school. So, he's an idiot, and of course, this is what he had to say to defend himself. I made a mistake. Uh, there's no other way, I mean, there's no other way to say it. I got into a topic that I shouldn't have, and, uh, and I screwed up. So for me personally, I don't have that much faith in Sean Spicer. I think that there's a possibility that he didn't make a mistake. I think he may have just been historically ignorant about World War II and whether or not Hitler used chemical weapons. So I'm not convinced that he misspoke. I think he may just be ignorant. However, with this presumed uh, Freudian slip, I guess we'll call it, I think that it really gives us some insight into something ominous about the Trump White House. So Trump is resorting to pro-war propaganda and what he likely communicated to his staff, including Sean Spicer, is that we need to do any and everything right now to vilify Assad in an effort to drum up support for the inevitable invasion into Syria. So, I mean, the goal isn't necessarily to be factual. The goal is to make sure that we do things to invoke World War II-era patriotism. Because, I mean, if we frame Bashar al-Assad as a threat that's as dangerous as Hitler, or maybe even worse, 
then we're obligated to invade Syria and put an end to the suffering. Basically, in trying to demonize Assad, which, I mean, he should be demonized because he's a bad guy. I don't think anyone will really object to that statement. But, I mean, by trying to invoke Hitler and compare him to Hitler, you're trying to plant this seed in Americans. It's very manipulative. You want them to think, well, if he's as bad as Hitler, maybe we should take action. They want you to envision human rights atrocities on the scale of World War II. I mean, if you think about the suffering of German Jewish people, then how could you not act? You're a bad guy if you didn't want to fight Hitler. So that's what they're trying to do. But Donald Trump, he's saying right now that we're not going to invade Syria, but you know he wants to invade Syria after seeing how popular it made him. However, this is what he wants to do. If you could drum up public support for another invasion by doing pro-war propaganda, well, you could say, you know what, my hands are tied. I was elected by the American people, and I am compelled to do the will of the American people, and the American people clearly want me to invade Syria and bomb Syria, so that's what I'm going to have to do. Now, let's not talk about how we manipulated the American people just like we did uh, to get them to support the Iraq war. Let's, let's not talk about that. All we want them to do right now is to react emotionally. We want them to put facts aside, and we want them to think that Assad is a World War II-level uh, II threat just like Hitler was. But what they don't want to tell you about is if you really care about Syrian lives, if you are worried about humanitarianism, well, if you bomb another country, if you start a war with another country, that will cause more death and destruction than if we just leave it alone. And furthermore, if you wanted to attack Assad, why didn't you do an independent investigation? It's because they don't want to know the truth. They're afraid to find out the truth because then that might go against the narrative. They want to invade Syria. They want to invade Iran. So they're looking for any and all reasons to justify an invasion of this war with a country that never attacked us. So yes, it is the case that this was a mishap from Sean Spicer and he's an idiot, but I think that we have to kind of read a little bit more into it because I really feel as though there's something more ominous behind Sean Spicer's mishap. He felt pressured by Donald Trump to really drum up support for the war, and this is part of that. So, the main takeaway is that we already know that Assad is a bad guy. I think he's an objectively bad person. However, so was Saddam Hussein, so was Gaddafi. But what happened when we overthrew those dictators? We put those countries in worse situations that allowed the manifestation of terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, we now have a strong ISIS presence in Libya. So we need to learn our lesson that when you do regime change, you just make matters worse. So getting involved is not the right move right now. I don't trust our government to go in and not just kill a bunch of civilians either. So, you know, they're looking for any and all reasons to justify war, and I really want you guys to be vigilant, be hypersensitive to them, read more into things than you typically do, because what they're doing right now is trying to manipulate you. The media is doing it, the politicians are doing it, they want war, and we have to be vigilant against their efforts to do propaganda. Throughout the course of his campaign, President Trump repeatedly said that he will be protecting Social Security. He said he's going to save Social Security without making any cuts. And now, can you guess what his agenda is? He is planning to cut Social Security and basically screw over your retirement plans 
And he's doing all of this under the guise of protecting Social Security. It's incredibly slimy. Uh, it's deceitful. And when you hear about this, you'll be incredibly angry. So Salon explains Trump and his team are planning to completely abandon Social Security's dedicated funding stream from the Federal Insurance Contributions Act payroll deduction and pay for the program with general revenue. They will sell this as a tax cut for workers, which is what it will look like on the paycheck. But Trump's rumored innovation is to replace the money with a form of value-added tax, which means that typical workers who spend most of their money on consumer goods will still pay taxes. They will just lose their retirement guarantee. Rich people will get their tax cuts and don't need Social Security anyway. It's a GOP win-win. What this means is that Social Security will become part of the normal budget process subject to the whim of each Congress as legislators appropriate money for wars and pet projects and their favorite form of fear-mongering nonsense, deficit reduction. It is inevitable that the basic contract all workers have with their government that they will commit a portion of their wages to the Federal Insurance Contributions Act account and will be guaranteed a pension 40 years from now will be declared null and void. That contract has resulted in payouts to several generations of workers since its inception in the 1930s. No thanks to the Republicans who have consistently tried to find ways to dismantle it. So this is a really slimy and cunning way to undermine public support for the program. He says, you know, well, we're just funding Social Security a different way and this will be a bonus for the American people because when you get your check, you're going to have a little bit more money because you will no longer see that money is going towards Social Security. Now, never mind the fact that when you're older, 40 years from now, you're not going to be able to retire. Let's not think about that right now. In the short term, you will benefit from this uh, and our rich friends will get a tax break. It is despicable. Again, I, we have to say it. This is someone who said he wouldn't cut Social Security on the campaign trail. And when you do this, you're pretending to save Social Security while not just cutting Social Security. I mean, this screws over our retirement plans. It's bad enough that my generation, since we basically moved from pensions to 401ks, we might not be able to retire to begin with. But I mean, if you do this, you basically are guaranteeing that millennials will not be able to retire. So... I find this incredibly infuriating because what he's doing is lying and deceiving the American people. He's pretending to look out for you when he's screwing you over in the worst way. Presidents have tried time and again to mess with Social Security because Wall Street has been salivating over it for decades. So it started with Bill Clinton. He initially tried to privatize Social Security. However, uh, once the Monica Lewinsky scandal came to light, he no longer had the political capital needed to do anything on his agenda. So he had to abandon it. And then we had George W. Bush, who said he was going to privatize Social Security uh, and he wanted to pro to uh, partially privatize it, but that didn't work because he faced fierce opposition. We had President Obama, who tried to cut Social Security, but Bernie Sanders called him out, and Republicans didn't let him do this because, oddly enough, they didn't think he was cutting it enough. So now Donald Trump is following in the footsteps of all of his predecessors and is trying to screw over your retirement plans. And if he thinks that he's going to be able to do this, and there won't be any backlash? Trump, you don't know what's coming because there are many interest groups, there are many citizens who are very weary of politicians when they start making changes to Social Security because we don't trust you, we can't trust you. You appointed four people from Goldman Sachs to your administration. Wall Street 
wants that money. They want to privatize Social Security. They want to undermine Social Security. They want to touch Social Security. So any change you make, we're not on board with. And we know what you're doing. So even though you think you can manipulate Americans by giving them a little bit of a bonus on their paychecks by not taking out Social Security, we know what you're trying to do. Your agenda is crystal clear. So if you think this is going to get through easily, you don't know what's coming, Donald Trump, because grassroots activists will be on your ass like you've never seen before. So try it, I dare ya. It's not going to happen. Time and again, Donald Trump has declared that he is the world's best negotiator, or he's one of the best negotiators in the world. Uh, but something that he's doing lately to try to get the Democrats to come to the table and work with him on a repeal of the Affordable Care Act is incredibly perplexing. He is trying to have some sort of leverage in order to persuade Democrats to uh, join in uh, with him to repeal the Affordable Care Act, even though there's no replacement whatsoever. But what he's doing is odd. So according to the Huffington Post, President Donald Trump is contemplating a new strategy to get repeal of the Affordable Care Act through Congress, threatening to torpedo insurance for millions of Americans unless Democrats agree to negotiate with him. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal that appeared on Wednesday, Trump made a warning. If Democrats won't talk repeal, the president said, Republicans might decide to cut off some subsidies now flowing to health insurers offering coverage through Obamacare's exchanges. I don't want people to get hurt, Trump said, sounding a bit like a mobster describing a protection racket. What I think should happen and will happen is the Democrats will start calling me and negotiating. Those subsidies are a really big deal. Without them, insurers would have to jack up premiums by an average of 19% for typical policies, according to a Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation study. That increase would be above and beyond any other increases in the works. Many insurers would probably exit the markets altogether. Okay, so I had to read this multiple times because his strategy is so stupid that it didn't make sense to me. Like, I thought I was missing something here, but I don't think I am. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but first, let's address what he's trying to do. He's trying to pay play politics with the lives of citizens because by repealing this subsidy, which he does have the authority to do, um, the one in particular that he is talking about, people would not be able to afford their insurance. I mean, if it spikes by 19%, people would lose their insurance. And if someone gets sick who lost their insurance... They either go bankrupt or they die. So Donald Trump is willing to play politics with the lives of American citizens who he's so, supposed to be representing and looking out for. So that's grotesque in and of itself. But think about how bereft of strategy this really is. It makes no sense. He's saying, hey, if you guys really want to save this subsidy, then you need to come to the table and negotiate a repeal of the Affordable Care Act with me. However, if you do come to the table and repeal the Affordable Care Act, then this subsidy will go away that way too, but you'll get blamed for it. So they have absolutely no incentive to get on board with this and negotiate with you because if they just allow you to repeal this subsidy and people lose their insurance, then you'll have the blood on your hands for this. But if they come to the table and actually work, work with you to repeal the Affordable Care Act, then they get blamed for it too. And the same subsidy will go away if you repeal the Affordable Care Act. So how is that leverage? How is that going to bring them to the table? That makes no sense. And it shows that you're not really that great of a negotiator after all, because in order to negotiate with someone, you actually have to have leverage over them. 
But if you're saying, hey, come take away this thing or I'm going to take it away first, they have no incentive to come to the table with you and then get blamed for it. So this is incredibly dumb. Now a bit more about this subsidy. The payments are called cost sharing reductions or CSRs. They reimburse insurers for the expense of providing special insurance plans with lower out-of-pocket costs to customers with outcomes below 250% of the poverty line or 61500 for a family of four. Now, the Affordable Care Act doesn't actually appropriate money for this subsidy, but Obama still dispersed money for it anyway, which is just one of the many failures of the Affordable Care Act. But Republicans actually sued the Obama administration, and they claimed that this was unconstitutional, and a U.S. district court judge took their side. So there is a chance that this subsidy will be going away anyway, but Trump is saying, you know what, I'm going to repeal this subsidy sooner. So Donald Trump has no strategy. He has resorted to throwing a temper tantrum in order to get Democrats to come to the table. It makes no sense. All you're doing is stripping away a subsidy sooner than if you would, uh, if you were to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And furthermore, you have no replacement for the Affordable Care Act, Trump. So literally, by just repealing the Affordable Care Act and not replacing it, what happens? All the people that got the Obamacare subsidy, anyone who benefited from the Medicare expansion, or the Medicaid expansion, excuse me, they will be thrown off their health insurance. Why would Democrats take the fall for you? Because if they come to the table, they take the fall for you effectively. They have no incentive to do that. So the world's best negotiator has resorted to throwing a temper tantrum. If this is how you do business and how you did business as a businessman, then it's no wonder why you went bankrupt. Because this is no strategy. And furthermore, to still push the envelope when it comes to Obamacare and repealing this, you're just going to throw people off of their health insurance. And if political science research has told us anything, it's that you can't take away a social safety net program after you've given it to people. That's not acceptable. That's not how you cultivate legitimacy. That's not how you generate public support. So if Donald Trump does this, he will be widely unpopular because... Support for the Affordable Care Act is increasing, so what we need to do now is just amend it, amend it and make it better. Fix it. Take that Medicare expansion and expand it to everyone, and then you fix it. We end this healthcare debate forever. We implement Bernie Care. But Trump doesn't want to do that because he's a corrupt buffoon, and he doesn't want the American people to actually have healthcare coverage because he's shown that he has contempt for us. He doesn't just not care about us, uh, which would be one thing. He actually hates us. He thinks about us as peasants. And this is what I've hypothesized before. And in trying to do this strategy, in trying to hold the healthcare of millions of Americans hostage, he's proving me right. So I've got an update for you guys about the YouTube apocalypse. So last week I talked about how the revenue of progressive content creators like Kyle Kolinsky, like David Pakman, uh, and even the amazing atheist who doesn't necessarily do news, but he covers social issues, their revenue basically collapsed. Um, and they were making next to nothing and ads really weren't being displayed on their videos. Now for me, I told you guys it was difficult for me to see how my channel was affected because even though I saw a huge dip in my revenue specifically on that day, um, my revenue was recently reset back to zero when I joined a network partner. So it was difficult for me to track it and I've really had to pay close attention to the situation on a day-by-day -day basis. Uh, and now it is very, very clear that we are 
heavily affected by the YouTube advertiser crisis. Basically what's happened is to kind of explain it is you have your views and then you have your revenue. So both of these things should be relatively close. So if you get, you know, X amount of views, you should get X amount of revenue. Now, what I noticed on that day uh, when I made the video was that, you know, there was a gap between my views and my revenue. And what I've seen as the days have kind of gone on is that the gap between my views and my revenue has widened. So we hit the lowest point in revenue this week that I think we hit since maybe 2015 when I had like 5,000 subscribers. I mean, it was the lowest ever. Um, and this is because YouTube just doesn't seem to be playing as much ads on my channel. Um, now, I can't talk specific numbers. However, last month when I generated 50,000 views in one day, I'd make a certain amount of money. But now when I generate that same amount of views, I am making 60% less. So that goes to show you that this channel is affected. Now, still, that's not the same as Kyle Kulinski and David Packard were affected because, I mean, they saw a 90% hit. Um, but this is only the beginning. I'm only really beginning to see the start of this. So we're kind of moving into a storm uh, and I'm preparing for the worst. However, kind of seeing how Kyle Kalinske was blacklisted and David Pakman was blacklisted, but they're no longer blacklisted, I'm at least privileged in that I can I can know what to expect more. I can look to them because they experienced this first. Um, so, additionally, another thing that is very strange is that I was enrolled in a, an affiliate program that many YouTubers are enrolled in. So there's a certain company that I'm not allowed to name um, anymore that um, they pay you to promote their products. It's a monthly service. And anytime you sign up for a free trial, they give us commission, maybe $10, $15. I think it's $15 for this one. Um, and, and all YouTubers have this same affiliate program. Now, I signed up for this um, when I first launched the podcast and when I had three episodes and I met the criteria, they approved me. And all of a sudden, I received an email from them saying, hey, we have review, reviewed your channel and you no longer meet the guidelines. So we are going to discontinue your affiliate program. Uh, and also, uh, please stop making videos until we discontinue this so nobody uses your link. <laughs> well, I'm not going to stop making videos. I'm just going to remove the link. Uh, but I, I responded and I asked them, why are you discontinuing my show? Because you already reviewed my channel and I do meet the criteria. But I see a new guideline there that wasn't there before saying if your channel uh, does hate speech, if you are controversial, or if you're political in nature, you do not meet our guidelines and we cannot uh, make you an affiliate. Now, what they're doing is very problematic because they're, they're doing the same thing as other advertisers. They're lumping any political shows in with hate speech. So it doesn't matter that I come out and literally denounce hate speech and I my show is antithetical to hate, spe hate speech. It's called The Humanist Report. It doesn't matter. If we're political, we might be controversial. So they don't want us to be an affiliate. Now, this isn't necessarily a big problem for me uh, because... Uh, you know, we haven't made that much money from them. I think I've made less than $100 in total. So this is definitely a blow that we can absorb. However, I'm worried that if this does happen to others with the same affiliate, uh, enrolled in the same affiliate program as me who do political shows, when it comes time for them to be reviewed or, or whatever, uh, apparently they conduct a review periodically, they may be unenrolled in this. And if you do generate a lot of money from this program, then you, this is going to hurt. 
So even people who were kind of seeking um, affiliate programs outside of YouTube may be impacted by this. Now, again, I this isn't going to hurt me very much because I, I didn't really talk about this affiliate program very much. I made basically nothing from it. Um, but it's just, it's problematic because it it's, it's emblematic of a trend that we're seeing. And if they follow suit, then maybe other affiliate programs may follow suit. So any alternative means of us producing revenue outside of YouTube besides Patreon, that may be in jeopardy now. Now, my video last week on Syria was demonetized, which isn't surprising to me, but it was 23 minutes long. It took hours for me to research, edit, and put it together. Yet, one of my viewers sent me a screenshot of YouTube promoting videos about Syria from the mainstream media news outlets. So, I did get an ad before one of these videos. I checked. So, I mean, they're featuring mainstream news videos about Syria while simultaneously demonetizing all of our videos about Syria so that way they can discourage us from talking about Syria. Doesn't this seem a little bit strange? Doesn't it seem that since, you know, some of us may be saying things that are contrary to what the uh, the Pentagon and the mainstream media want you to hear about Syria, doesn't it seem like they're trying to dissuade us and they're trying to push a different narrative from the mainstream media? I mean, I feel like I am, uh, I'm not wrong to break out the tinfoil hat here. It seems like they're trying to crush independent media outlets. And... Guess what? The mainstream media isn't covering this because they want us to be crushed. I mean, when you see the Humanist Report killing it in the views uh, when it comes to Fox News, I mean, go look on their channel. They don't like us. They see us as a threat, and so they're trying to crush us now. But the good news is that, you know, the bigger YouTubers that I've been in contact with, um, they've kind of let me know what to expect, and so I don't feel as uneasy about it because I know... Um, that if I do lose some revenues, it will rebound to a certain extent. I just don't know when or how much. So, um, also though, you guys have helped us so much. So, um, anytime somebody signs up, I want you to know that I really, I am incredibly thankful and appreciative for your generosity and kindness, and I will be thanking you. Uh, and also, anyone who pledges $5 or more, I, I do tend to, usually, not every week, but I send you links to the videos that I will be uploading throughout the week. Because once I started the podcast, you know, being a full-time student, I knew that if I ever wanted to be successful, I had to release a new video every single day. So I would film an episode, cut that up into multiple clips, and then release those segments daily. Um, but rather than sitting on the episodes, once I began to cultivate enough people um, that became members, I decided why not send it to them early and reward them for helping the show survive, you know? Um, so that's what you get. If you, if you sign up for five bucks, I send you videos. I do live chats with, uh, with people who contribute five bucks. And if it's a buck, then, uh, I give you recognition and I'm just, you know, I see people pledging a dollar, one dollar, two dollars, a buck 50. And I, it's so touching. You guys are amazing. And you know, I've had a couple of people say, Mike, I wish I could support the humanist report, but I've got to support the young Turks. I've got to support David Pakrin just because I, you know, I'm, I've been watching them longer. Thank you. Don't apologize for that because I really feel as though when you help one outlet, you help all of us because we, we're all kind of in this together. If one of us falls, then that makes all of us vulnerable. So whatever you can do to help all of us, that's a win-win-win. Uh, I see I see nothing but a benefit fr from it. So if you truly believe that um, there's someone else who's doing this better and you only have a buck to spare, then please support that individual because what you're doing is, is really, really helping them out. So I don't know, you know, how long this will last, but thank you for helping us. Um, 
because it, it sucks. We have to fight back. And YouTube, even if they may want to crush us, it's not going to happen because you guys have already come to the rescue of our shows. So thank you all so much. So as you watch this video right now, the Humanist Report just passed a gigantic milestone, one that I never thought we would have ever passed um, when I started this channel. We passed 100,000 subscribers. I don't even know what to say about that. This is something that was unfathomable to me when I started this podcast. My goal was to kind of, you know, start a YouTube podcast, try to get some public speaking experience, um, you know, try to form a small, tight-knit progressive community with other like-minded progressives to where, you know, we can all talk about politics and whatnot. Holy crap, this morphed into something that I I didn't think it would ever be possible. 100,000 subscribers, it's difficult to even envision how big of an audience that is because if I speak to a crowd of like 30 people when I give presentations, you know, at uh, as part of my college uh, studies and whatnot, I nearly shit my pants. But the fact that I have 100,000 people um, that subscribed to the channel... This says a lot about the country. It says that there are people that are hungry for something different in terms of the media. People are tired of the bullshit that we've been fed, and people are looking for progressive change. I mean, I my goal when I started this was to minimize myself and put the policy issues at the forefront. I wanted everything to be about policy, 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 Medicare for all, um, education and whatnot. And, you know, you kind of start with something and it just kind of takes off and I've always you know been trying to find my f my footing because I don't know what the hell I'm doing I'm not a trained professional public speaker I'm not you know a political pundit I've never went to school for journalism um I'm the dude who's behind the scenes you know political science studies um I do the research the data I crunch the numbers as boring as that sounds I actually enjoyed it uh so this is something that you know I'm trying to I'm trying to acclimate to this because this is still new. I mean, our, our channel reached this milestone relatively fast and we've captured the attention of the establishment. Uh, it's called a Humanist Report podcast. So, you know, starting this podcast, I tried to make sure that it was professional and I did everything right. But when it launched, it was it was a complete disaster because I do this out of the spare bedroom in my house um, that me and my fiance are renting. And then we have a little cage with my bearded dragon and then we keep a separate cage for crickets and i forgot to take them out of the room for my first episode so all you can hear are crickets in the background <laughs> and like an idiot i hooked up the microphone but was recording audio from my laptop so technologically speaking it was a disaster but it was the most fun i've had in a long time it's going to be a really tough battle but i think bernie sanders can do it we just got to get behind him we got to support uh him you can go to berniesanders.com and donate to his campaign, even five bucks is going to help because this is really a grassroots effort. If you want a non-establishment candidate, if you want someone who's going to get money out of politics, you've got to support Bernie Sanders. And even though I was awkward doing it, you know, and it, it took me a while to really find my voice, now that we're doing this, I feel as though I'm really doing something important. So, I mean, I don't, I don't look at this as a victory for the Humanist Report. I, I look at this as something that the progressive movement did. And, you know, people ask me, you know, who, who else works on the Humanist Report? Because when I refer 
to the human support. I say we all the time, and people have asked about this. Um, when I say we, I mean us, the audience, the progressive movement, the people who donated to Bernie Sanders, the people who are donating to the Patreons of the Humanist Report, Secular Talk, the Young Turks. These are the people that I'm referring to when I say we, but in terms of the channel, I do everything by myself. Um, I don't have a team. I would love to have a team. I would love to have an editor. I'd love to have a co-host, um, but I'm doing everything by myself. I'm editing by myself and it takes a lot. You know, it, it's a full-time gig now. And um, I couldn't be happier. This is this is the even though it gets very uh, depressing sometimes. Even though I have to talk about political issues that are that may cause you know psychological distress for a lot of people, war, poverty, um, healthcare. It's something that I enjoy doing because I feel as though it's important. You know, I I can do things that I wasn't able to do before. I have a voice that I never felt like I had before, and people are saying you know. This is your hour of voice. You know, you're communicating a message that we want. Um, so it's just remarkable. To reach 100,000 subscribers is... I don't even know what to say. This is certainly something that um, we are going to build from here. Um, and we're just going to get bigger and better as we go along. So... Thank you all so much for 100,000 subscribers. I didn't plan anything because I didn't honestly know what to say. <laughs> um, because this is, you know, I never expected this. Who expects to reach 100,000 subscribers? I mean, YouTube is oversaturated with thousands of people that post videos every day hoping to, you know, achieve even just a modicum of notoriety. And it's very rare to have a channel actually get successful, you know, to this level. But it shows that, you know, we're tapping into something that's really important. We're at a we're at a point and time in our country where people are woke. You know, they've woken up and they want something different. And I and I really feel honored to be one of the voices that, you know, is is trying to lead that cause and be a voice for progressives. So thank you all so much. None of this would be possible without you. Um and yeah. So we just passed 100,000 subscribers, and the question is, now what? You know, where do we go from here? So first of all, we're going to celebrate. So I will be doing a live Q&A show so you guys can uh, ask me questions. Um, I don't have a date for this yet, so, you know, stay tuned for that. When I do have a date, I'll be pinning the date uh, and time to the uh, comment section in the YouTube video. Uh, but here's what I want you guys to do to participate. If you're not going to be able to make it to the live show, submit a question down below, and I'm going to try to answer as much questions as possible. I think the last time I did this, uh, when I hit 25,000, I answered every single question, I believe. I probably won't be able to do this now um, that we just have so much more viewers. So if you guys see a question that you like, give it the thumbs up. If you're on Facebook, like it. Uh, and that will float it to the top and it will, you know, it'll show me that you're interested in this particular comment. Furthermore, if you want your question to be answered on video, film a video of yourself asking me a question uh, and email that to me at mike at humanistreport.com. Um, and I will try to answer that as long as you're not doing anything crazy, you know, showing your booty hole on camera or something. I'll probably answer the question. Um, so yeah, we will have fun. We'll do a live show. It will probably be the week after next. Um, but again, 
I'll have a concrete date and time uh, in the video link down below. And also, if you follow us on Twitter and you are part of the Humanist Report Facebook page, I will be making an official announcement of the date and time then. Now, second of all, what next is uh, in store for the Humanist Report? Well, um, one of the things that I don't know if I can spill the beans on, but I've been holding it back forever now and I'm ready to. Um, so within probably the next month or so, the Humanist Report will be expanding um, to a brand new uh, venue. And that is we will be getting our own channel on Roku. So just like you can go on Roku and download Netflix and Hulu, you can now download the Humanist Report. So I don't know when that's going to be live. I've been working on this with um, a team who's kind of using me as a guinea pig. Um, and my channel is a guinea pig, and eventually, you know, we're going to try to monetize it. This could one day be an alternative to YouTube. I don't know how viable and lucrative that will be, but if this works for me, I'm going to make sure that all progressives have this as an option. Um, and I've already talked to the company about expanding to other progressives, and they seem um, inclined to bring them on. It, you know, we're going to test it out on me first and see how this works. So this is, I mean, a Roku channel for us is awesome, I think. I, you know, um, in terms of what the benefits will be of using the Humanist Report Roku channel, other than just using the YouTube channel uh, and watching Humanist Report videos that way, you know, we're testing it out. We're trying to see what works, what people like, but this is something that I'm excited about. You know, it's something little, but, you know, we're getting our own Roku channel. I think that's pretty cool. Now, um, another thing is I recently stated that I joined a network, and people have been wondering what the hell is up with that? So now I'm going to tell you, but before I tell you what network I joined, uh, I will tell you why I thought it was important to join a network. So for me, I never intended to join a network because I think that it is something that a lot of YouTubers get duped into doing. They take, you know, a certain portion of your ad revenue and I feel like they don't really deliver much of a service to you. However, as you begin to grow, you get more vulnerable to uh, corporate entities that try to take you down. So I've had a couple of videos, um, where I've had the legal teams of gigantic news organizations, well, their legal department basically threatened to shut down my channel if I um, don't demonetize their videos. So, for example, I had one video where I played about a 30-second clip of an interview of Donald Trump, um, and the company filed a copyright claim, and I, I clearly, you know, I, uh, I appealed that claim because it's fair use. I, I'm allowed to use a clip if, it, if, if, you know, it is a jumping point for discussion. And they said, you know, basically we disagree and we want to challenge you on that. At that point, my hands are tied. I, even if I'm in the legal right and if I am uh, abiding by the fair use doctrine in a way that is completely legal, I just the legal fees alone would destroy this channel, bankrupt it. So there's no way I could challenge it. So I had to concede. And what happens is, you know, there are times as well when I got copyright strikes on my channel, and this is because I showed a picture of Trevor Noah. His face is so sacred that if you show even just the picture of him, they <laughs> Viacom will give you a copyright strike. So what a network partner provides you with is they can kind of shield you from this. So if I get a copyright strike, you know, without a network partner, there's no one I can call when something goes wrong. But with a network partner, there is someone that I can call. And throughout the course of my time on YouTube as a YouTube host, I've gotten probably more than 25 different offers from companies, some who literally tried to bribe me. Uh, I'm not kidding. They said, you know, sign a contract, Mike. Uh, we will take nothing from you, no revenue, and we'll give you money. We'll give you $1,000 today if you sign. 
uh, I walked away from all of those because if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And I'm I'm not looking to sign a network that's going to change my content. That was basically part of it. All of these contracts that I read through with all the legalese and whatnot, I didn't trust it. So um, there was no way I was going to sign anything that you know would force me to surrender control of my channel or impact the content. And I never felt easy about the network partners that made offers. So now it comes to the network. Which network did I join? So there were two networks that I was willing to join. Small networks, progressive networks. One of them was the Ring of Fire. The other was TYT Network. And this is because unlike the other networks, those two networks, they only have about 12 different network partners. So you don't have to be one of a thousand people to call them if something goes wrong. You have direct contact with them. Um, so I have to send a huge, huge, huge thank you to another YouTuber for making this happen. So Kyle Kolinsky of Secular Talk, uh, he's part of TYT Network. He put in a good word for me and without him, this wouldn't have happened, but I have officially joined TYT Network. Now, TYT Network had a contract that's two pages. Um, it was very clear that in signing with TYT, they actually will, will protect me and I'll be getting something in return. Now, what does this mean for the humanist support? What changes about the humanist support now that we're part of TYT Network? Nothing. Literally nothing. Um, content doesn't change at all. In fact, we just have protection now and it might help us grow even faster because... Um, it could give me the opportunity to be on, you know, the main show, which would expose a bigger audience to the humanist report. And my content stays the same. I don't have to worry about anything. And if I get a copyright strike and I have a, a you know, a legal team threatening to shut me down, I can call up the Young Turks and they can come to the rescue and I feel a lot better. And, you know, since I've joined, they've been great. And I've already seen, you know, since they've been really trying to um, share my videos, I've seen... A lot of uh, growth. The thing about a, a network partner is that you know you're you're a partner, so um, you're co-equals in this relationship. So this doesn't mean that TYT owns the humanist report. Um, and part of the reason why I I joined TYT is because they have a contract where I can get out of it. You know, I, you're not backed into a corner, which is great. Um, now I have you know I don't I don't see myself leaving because I think that they've been incredibly helpful just in terms of like. Um, little details about things, you know, just saying, hey, Mike, you know, if you put the humanist report in the tag section of your video, you know, this will really help to kind of link your videos and you'd get more suggestions. Suggestions. So little things like this that have just been tremendously helpful and they've been incredibly kind. So I'm very, very excited. Again, huge shout out to Kyle. He is the one that made this happen. He's the one that put in the good word for us. Without him, we would not be part of TYT. Um, and they've been great. Steve-O, uh, Aaron, they have been really, really helpful. Anytime I have a message, if I email them a hundred times a day, they respond. You know, they're they're just looking out for us, and it feels good to kind of have someone to call when something goes wrong. And the advice that they've given me, I think, has been invaluable. So, you know, these are kind of the things that are um, coming with the channel. Just big things to help us grow. Nothing is changing, but. That doesn't mean that I do want to grow the show in other ways. I, you know, I'd love to have a co-host one day. I'd love to host maybe different types of podcasts in addition to the Humanist Report on this channel. But, you know, we're taking it all one step at a time. I've been kind of doing little things here and there as I've grown. But right now, I'm just going to, you know, we're going to enjoy the ride uh, and just continue to talk about politics and push the issues that are important. So, yeah, hopefully you guys are excited by the news. Um, You know, if not, then you can tell me 
on the uh, live show that we do. <laughs> so uh, I'll see you guys there. Hey everyone, I am here with author, columnist, journalist, and founder of counterpropa.com, H.A. Goodman. How's it going, H.A.? It's been a long time since we have uh, spoken. I know, Mike. How you been? I've been doing really well. You know, I mean, uh, doing, you know, hanging in there in spite of the ridiculously toxic political climate. How about you? Same here. Um, it's, it's, it's been crazy. I, I really appreciate being on your show. Well, I appreciate you coming back on, man. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but just especially within the last week, it's been difficult to sleep when you think about, like, I want to pull up one of your headlines here. So on counterpropa.com, propa.com, you say Trump could start World War III with another Syria airstrike. So I was going to ask you about your opinion on that, but that kind of tells me uh, that <laughs> we're on the same page here. How terrifying really should we all be i've been accused of being too hyperbolic when i mentioned world war three but clearly oh, you no. agree with me i mean are we right to panic right now absolutely you know it's not hyperbole at all in fact um i have a weekly show on monday with tim black it's called no sellouts and the last no sellouts we talked about it and in terms of the article in counterpropa I, it's also in the huffington post um number one there are over four thousand soldiers in uh, Russian soldiers in Syria right now. Number two, the, the Russians have conducted, are conducting twice as many airstrikes as we are in Syria. Number three, they have over 7,000 nuclear warheads. We have around 6,900 nuclear warheads. Both countries have a no first use policy, meaning that both countries reserve the right to utilize nuclear weapons first without, their, without an adversary launching anything at them. The big issue with Syria is that it's a proxy war. They, the Russians, uh, Vladimir Putin has direct national interest to keeping Assad in power. Iran and Syria are really the only allies of Russia in the Middle East. We have Israel, Saudi Arabia, Gulf nations, you know, the majority of them, even Iraq and Afghanistan, even though we've destabilized those countries, the power structure is aligned with us. So their, their, big, their greatest ally, aside from Iran, is Syria. They have decades, a decades-long relationship throughout the Cold War, militarily and politically, with Syria. We had the chance, if it's about humanitarian reasons, we had the chance in 2012, the United Nations and Russia both gave us uh, uh, peace deals to negotiate. We denied every request. Uh, Obama and Clinton basically said we'd rather have a proxy war than any chance of peace with Assad, even though Bill Clinton worked with Milosevic for peace in the Balkans. And uh, up until the Libya fi fiasco, which, which uh, Hillary Clinton was the deciding factor, President Obama uh, was weighing whether or not to remove Gaddafi. Joe Biden was against it. Clinton was for it. That's his biggest mistake. He told Fox News that was his biggest mistake. There are now slave auctions in Libya. It's completely destabilized. It's a failed state, and there's ISIS safe havens throughout Libya. So basically, it wasn't. It was never about humanitarian reasons. It was always about regime change. Assad is not a good person. He's a, he's a bastard. Fine, but we we work with dictators throughout our history. If let's just say we remove Assad, is, are Howard Dean and New York Tandon going to 
going to occupy Damascus and fight IEDs because once we remove a dictator, we send the army to occupy and to rebuild the country. Um, so, and then, and then our soldiers face IEDs, um, snipers, ambushes. But the really big issue with with Russia, just which gets back to you're not. It's, there's no hyperbole. Russia will never let Assad fall ever. If we forcibly, let's say through further airstrikes, because Trump said he's open to more airstrikes. If we provoke Russia, they have every incentive to either call our bluff or to escalate. And they're not, even though they're they're kind of, they're, they're, it's not a bipolar world anymore, they still have the same, they have more nuclear warheads than we do. So, and, and we've encircled them in terms of NATO, in terms of the world, we are a, a dominant, we're, we're more dominant than Russia is. They can't really... Uh, counter us directly, economically, or even militarily. Right. But in Syria, if they're pushed, it's like cornering an animal. Uh, so that is a very dangerous situation, which if I agree 100% with you, it's not a matter of if something horrible takes place. It's It could be a matter of when. Right. And, you know, at the beginning of my segment on Syria... You know, I opened basically by saying, I hate to say this, but this is the start of something catastrophic in terms of foreign policy. Now, you brought up humanitarianism um, and how you really see this push in the media to frame this as a humanitarian intervention. But, I mean, if we're really going to go that route, don't you think that the same media people should be talking about how we're currently arming Saudi Arabia and they are executing... Yemeni civilians, they're carrying out war crimes, they're bombing schools and hospitals. I mean, if we're really worried about humanitarian issues, then why aren't we talking about that? Clearly, I think that you see um, the military-industrial complex having its way with the media right now. And when you have, you know, Democrats and Republicans in Congress both pushing for the same thing, I think that, you know, maybe um, you kind of are on the same mind with me when I really feel like everyone is kind of coming together like they did before Iraq to push us into war. Absolutely. No, you're 100% right. The Washington Post and the New York Times, what they're, and there's basically, they're basically public relations firms. And we saw that with Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. The Washington Post first went after Bernie Sanders and did everything possible to prop up Hillary Clinton and then go after Trump. So it's not about policies or, or ideology. In terms of war, they all unite. The Democratic Party, the establishment, the establishment in the Republican Party, and the media all unite. And if you've noticed, there's no more Russian hacking. There's less Russian hacking discussion now. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's, Trump had a lot of incentive domestically to launch the airstrikes. Um, what took place is neoconservatives, and this is in The Intercept, neoconservatives fundraised for Hillary Clinton. So the same people who slithered into the Democratic Party from the Republican Party are now running the show in terms of Democratic foreign policy. They're running the show also. You have the McCains and Lindsey Grahams out there that are also war hawks and pushing for the Libya, uh, for, sorry, for, for Syria regime change. It's never about, you're 100% right, Mike, it's not about humanitarian uh, issues. The 
we don't apparently we don't care if Assad kills hundreds of thousands conventionally, but only through gas. So in 2012, if we cared about because we we had worked with dictators before to find peaceful solutions to different conflicts, uh, the Balkans being one example. This is why when I said that I would only vote for Bernie Sanders and then I would vote for Jill Stein. This is why both parties are the same, because they unite on war, foreign policy. Both parties don't want to break up too big to fill banks. A lot of Democrats say, oh, look, look at the climate climate change. Look at what Trump's doing with the EPA. Okay, well, where's the, uh, where's the green economy? Because the Green Party, Jill Stein has an actual date where she wants a green economy, where the economy is running on renewable energy sources. Democrats do not have that. So that's why I say, I mean, this is... A prime example, they've all united, and what is being done to Tulsi Gabbard is absolutely horrendous, and it's one of the big reasons Trump could, is probably going to win again in 2020. If he continues with the hawkishness, he might not, because then Americans will say, well, you know what, if we're going to have war and, and, and uh, the military-industrial complex, we might, we might as well have that without the border wall. <laughs> so that's what we're at right now. But... What, what Trump, what, what Howard Dean and Neera Tanden and all the Democrats are doing is they're trying to alienate anti-war voters and they're trying to uh, disparage the only person, aside from Bernie, but really Tulsi Gabbard is the loudest voice. You have Tulsi Gabbard, you have Nina Turner, you have Bernie Sanders, all three are threats to the Democratic establishment because the Democratic establishment sees eye to eye with John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Paul Ryan on war. There's no difference between them. That's why when people were saying, well, no, you have to vote for Hillary because because then you have Trump. Well, yeah, but they, they both want both uh, apparently both now want regime change. Right. And so you know, when you made this point about Democrats and Republicans effectively being the same party, especially when it comes to foreign policy. I mean, I don't think this is a stretch. I know that some progressives will kind of push back against that assertion. But think about this. I mean, if we have Donald Trump, I agree with you, everything he's doing with the EPA, you know, women's rights, LGBT rights, it's all horrible. What he's doing, though, is uh, he is rolling back social progress via executive order. These are all things that can be reversed when we actually do get a progressive president in the White House. However, things that they both agree on, both parties, uh, you know, intervention, regime change, these are things that can't be reversed. You can't take back no. the lives that are lost once point. you bomb another country. So this is why when H.A. Goodman, you know, just talking to the viewers, or when I say, you know, they're, they're so similar that why come out to vote for them? You might as well, you know, stay home or vote Republican. I mean, I'm not encouraging people to yeah. stay home. But, I mean, this is, this is the, uh, the mindset that a lot of voters that, I, that I've spoken with have. This is why. It's because Democrats don't offer us anything differently. And it's so frustrating. And one thing I wanted to ask you about now is uh, you mentioned Russia. So you've also been uh, on the same page with me when it comes to Russia and their Russian hysteria. So I want to ask you now, what are they going to do? Because Trump clearly has shown that, you know, if you're willing to bomb Trump, uh, Putin's ally, you're not a bitch of Putin. So... <laughs> what are they going to do? Do you think this is all just kind of uh, going to fizzle out? Are they going to try to continue this narrative? I mean, I, I just kind of want to get your general take on this situation now that they're kind of backed into a corner. Well, do you know how insane the whole thing? It, it's so insane because everybody from Howard Dean to Neera Tandon can't name to the the New York Times got a Pulitzer Prize on their courageous coverage of the uh, Russia, Russia's reemergence uh, or their their 
attempt at trying to further their value system, some bolt, you know, yeah. baloney like that. It is so insane and it is so ridiculous and ludicrous. There's nothing that they can actually point to. So Bush, when it was when George W. Bush, Russia had a military intervention in Georgia, neighboring country. He did nothing. Under President Obama, there was an intervention in Ukraine. Obama did nothing militarily. Russia does, has, what, the 12th ranked economy in the world. They don't have the, the economy for to, to go into Poland or to attack Poland. There's no, they are not attacking and, and occupying or controlling any country in the world. Nobody is accusing them of that. So there's no specific military danger that they pose to the West. They're not going to, this isn't the Cold War where they're, they're possibly going to invade Poland. It's not going to happen. They can't, the whole, the whole Russian, uh, Putin evil Russian, from, from 2000, sorry, from 1996 to 2009, around 96 journalists were killed in Russia. After 2009, Hillary Clinton and President Obama signed off on 20% of U.S. uranium capacity being sold to Uranium One, and Uranium One sold that to the Kremlin. Now, the Snopes article has nothing to do with what I just said. The Snopes article is just saying that Clinton wasn't paid directly. Fine. But if they're that big of an enemy, why sell uranium that they could then sell to North Korea or to anyone else? So there's nothing specifically that people like Neera Tandon or Howard Dean or, Dem or the Democratic establishment can actually say, well, Russia will do this if we don't oppose them. The whole, the whole Syria thing is, well, this is a way to fight Russia without fighting Russia. It's a proxy war. So we can, we can have an arm wrestling match, and if Assad falls, we'll win. But then who's going to rebuild the country? Right. Um, and if we cared about the country, this is what... Democrats, especially, because Republicans, we know who they are. We know that at least one thing I respect about Republicans is that they don't, they have a value system and they vote for politicians that honor their value system. So Trump, you know, he said he's going to build, he's going to build a wall. They want a wall. They want whatever, you know, the executive orders and he appeased his base. What happens to progressives who want single payer? Breaking up too big to fill banks, reinstating Glass Steagall. They are bullied, stomped on. You better fall in line. If you don't, you are ostracized. You get, you know, hit pieces by the Daily Beast. Daily Beast wrote about me just because I said Bernie was better and Clinton would not win. And so um, that's the difference between both parties. But in terms of the future, there's no anti war movement in, in America, it's been completely swallowed up and almost destroyed by the Democratic Party. There needs to be an anti-war movement. If there is, you then have a split between anti-war Democrats and Republicans. Then there's a choice. If, if people in 2020 are going to say, you know what, I can get a corporate centrist Democrat or Trump, they might just pick Trump. Right. Because at least he is who he is. He's not a liar or uh, somebody that you know, uh, you know, stomps on his base. The Democratic Party is not true to its base. And you see it on social media, you see it everywhere. If you don't follow the party line, if you're not afraid of Russia, then there's something wrong with you. If you don't believe that Trump worked with WikiLeaks to hack the DNC to undermine Clinton's chances, then there's something wrong with you. Right. So, so I'll, I'll follow up. So I don't, 
I would disagree with you when you say that Trump's not a liar. I think the difference between Trump and the Democrats is that he just believes his lies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Trump Trump is a liar, but that's that's what I, what I, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Trump though is he's at least truer to the right value system. So right, he, like he's actually trying to give the base something in terms of like yeah. the wall. I see what you're saying. Like, but whereas like with Barack Obama, I mean, what did we got crumbs here and there from Obama? But I mean, I felt like he didn't ultimately do, and I think I'm not alone here. Clearly, he he didn't do what he sought to do, which is you know change the way that we do politics in Washington, whatever the hell his tagline you know was back then. So no, I, I agree with you. I think that the the Republican Party. They are truer, you know, to their base. I think that they at least represent their base um, for, like, the diehard Republicans. Whereas with the Democratic Party, you elect them to be anti-war. We elected, you know, Obama to be anti-war, and we got Libya. We got uh, we got the same— Drones, yeah. yeah right, the drones, um, and he didn't pull out of Iraq. When for me, I mean, that was the first time I was old enough to vote for Obama. So I voted for him. Basically, that was an anti-Iraq war vote. You know, I mm -hmm. wanted him to pull yeah. out of Iraq. And look at that. We are still— in Iraq right now. Um, so it, it's just so it's so frustrating to me. Now, uh, one thing that I wanted to ask you about was uh, Bernie Sanders' unity tour with Tom Perez and what your thoughts are on this because I, I see this and it makes me cringe because <laughs> I, I feel as though Bernie Sanders, he, he's a powerful person. He is the most popular politician in the country right now. So I feel as though by going on this unity tour, he's tacitly endorsing the Democratic Party and is in effect rewarding them for bad behavior. I mean, they recently voted down a ban on lobbyist contributions. Um, they are now cheerleading Donald Trump when they purport to be the resistance now that he is trying <laughs> to start another war. So um, do you think I'm being too unreasonable here? Because I, I just feel like, I mean, and I don't hate Bernie Sanders. I'm still on the Bernie bus. I don't know if you are. I think you probably are too. Yeah. But I mean, really? I, I feel as though Bernie Sanders strategically, I want him to have some backbone and treat Democrats the same way that Trump treated Republicans. You know, I mean, when when it seemed as though they tried to steal the nomination from Trump, what did he do? He started to threaten them uh, and saying he's going to run as an independent. I want Bernie Sanders to kind of do the same thing. So I, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that because I don't I don't know if I'm being too unreasonable here. By no, you're one hundred and fifty percent right. You're one hundred percent right. What? Okay, Bernie Sanders is. I love him, and there's no. There's two ways to look at it. One is that he's trying to reform from within the system. He got completely screwed, and he knows what could take place because right now he's the glue between the progressives who hate Democrats and the Democrats who want regime change. <laughs> so he's the only person in between the Howard Dean and Neera Tannins of the world who don't like Tulsi Gabbard. And the people who are like, I'm voting for Green Party, I will never vote Democrat again, or I'm only voting for Tulsi Gabbard, Nina Turner, Bernie Sanders, that's it. If he leaves the Democratic Party, Democrats are absolutely screwed. There's no um, inspirational motive. Uh, the only inspirational voices like uh, Nina Turner or Tulsi Gabbard, they're threats to the Democratic Party. So in terms of the establishment, they're just fear mongers. They... They fear Russia. That's it. That's not going to get progressives to the polls. That kind of thing, that rhetoric gets conservatives to the polls. If you can frighten conservatives and say, oh, you know, these people are invading us, that gets them, you know, motivated. Bold messages get progressives motiv motivated. 
So you're 100% right. I wish that he didn't do it because he's rewarding. He's absolutely rewarding cheating, horrible behavior, corruption. Uh, the alternative is that he leaves or he, he threatens a Democratic Party saying, I'll, I'll remain independent if you don't change. I'm not going to go ahead and speak up for you anymore or defend, you know, or further the Russia thing, which is also I was very disappointed when when uh, when Bernie furthered the Russian uh, hacking thing. Oh, me too, uh, man. Me yeah. too. So you're 100 percent right. I just think that the only hope now in terms of a counter establishment voice are two people, Nina Turner, but the Tulsi Gabbard. And I think that ultimately my philosophy from day one, when I was saying in 2000. 15, that Hillary Clinton could not win. And, you know, people on Reddit and, you know, all these places, they're like, oh, this guy's crazy. Da, da, da. I talked about favorability ratings. I talked about all of the issues that, that Clinton, the reasons, the real reasons why, and the fact that she was advised by neoconservatives. And we see that now with the merger of both parties. We see that all the true colors are coming up. They don't hate Trump anymore. Now they're okay, kind of, with Trump, sort of, because they have to defend Clinton's foreign policy. And at the same time, kind of defend what Trump's doing because, you know, it's very similar to regime change. But the only way to defeat Trump, I always say now, is to defeat the Democratic establishment. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, Mike, let's say Tulsi runs and they do everything possible to prevent her from winning. Let's say Bernie runs or Nina Turner runs and they do everything possible from preventing them from winning. Or maybe they cheat, but in a more surreptitious manner where it's not overt cheating. What if we don't have another DNC WikiLeaks emails? What if we don't know just how horrible they were to Tulsi Gabbard or Bernie in 2020? And then they get, you know, uh, I always say uh, Pelosi Schumer 2020. It's like, <laughs> like I always joke around saying they've whipped up such a, such a frenzy over the Russian hacking and all that, that if Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer ran in 2020, would people vote for them? And the Pelosi Schumer progressives and Democrats um, the only way to defeat them is to say, I'm not voting for anyone who won't break up banks, who won't reinstate Glass-Steagall, who won't um, ban fracking, who won't oppose regime change. If you have backbone, as you listen, I'm sure there's a lot of people watching this that they don't like me. That's fine. It's totally cool. But have some backbone. Don't just say, oh, I oppose, I'm so afraid of Trump. He's rolling back all of these things. Well, how do you think he got there? Mm -hmm. He got there because... There was a Democrat that didn't motivate, that didn't say, I'm going to do big things, break up banks, you know, bring our soldiers home, all of these things. If you have a centrist, Trump is not only going to win, he's going to win in the same way he won against Hillary. And one quick thing, um, you know, you're 100 percent. One reason you're 100 percent right, uh, Mike, about Bernie is that. As much as I rail against Hillary Clinton, there's one positive about her in terms of money. She raised $1.2 billion. Trump, as this reality show star, raised $600 million, spent $600 million. Bernie only spent $200 plus million. There's like a DNC lawsuit now. Where, you know, Bernie voters trying to get their money back. Trump won the Electoral College with $600 million. Democrats said, oh, we won the popular vote. Well, who gives a crap? Right. You're supposed to win the popular vote anyway, and you outspent him two to one. Mm-hmm. Trump is going, he's president, he'll be president for four years in 2020. He's going to raise more money than anybody not named Clinton. Yep. If Clinton doesn't run again, which 
who knows? She might, and she'll lose again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if it's somebody else, it's doubtful that they raise that much money. Especially, and you don't have to raise a billion dollars if you stand for something like banning fracking, because then people right. will just give money on their own. But if you don't stand for something, you're centrist. You need that money, mm-hmm. and I don't. See, I don't see Democrats raising that type of money. Um, if you're not Hillary Clinton, you're not, you don't have all those big ties. To, so I, I think Democrats are screwed in 2020, especially with what they're doing. They're doubling down on everything that got them to lose. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, you mentioned Hillary Clinton. And, uh, like, I know that you probably get the same criticism that I get, that we still kind of talk about Hillary Clinton relatively frequently. But the thing about Hillary Clinton is that because she's such a fundraising giant – she still has a large influence on the Democratic Party and its politics. I mean, they can call up Hillary Clinton anytime and get her to do a fundraiser, and she will raise them millions of dollars. And so long as she is basically helping them to raise money and she is still out there on the speaking tour, she has a huge influence on the Democratic Party's politics. So she's basically holding them back from what they need to be doing, which is move towards a, a more grassroots-oriented approach, even though Debbie Wasserman Schultz might say they're already grassroots. But they, they desperately uh-huh. need to change. And she's basically stopping them from uh, reforming the party. And I think that so long as Hillary Clinton has this ongoing presence and she's coming out of the woods, um, it seems as though they're still looking to her as the Democratic Party leader because it seemed like they were kind of lost after the election they were like you know you heard nancy pelosi talk about well you know obama he was just president so i don't think it's crazy to say that he's not the leader they're lost and they need someone to rally behind and they don't want it to be bernie sanders it can't be bernie because he threatens the cash cow so they'll kind of trot him out and they'll say this is this is who we're like but you know behind closed doors they're still taking corporate money so really i kind of still feel as though they look to hillary clinton for guidance And it's frustrating because so long as she's in the picture, so long as we have corporate Democrats like Cory Booker getting these fluff pieces written for them, uh, they're not going to change because, like you said, they need that money. I think that's such a huge part of it. And they don't know how to raise the money uh, exclusively via grassroots because they've pissed all over the base or, or they've shitted on the base and pissed us off. Uh, and, and what you know, who wants to donate to them if we feel as though my money isn't going to buy me anything, you know, politically? So... It's kind of just the situation where I feel like if Donald Trump lost, I would be surprised in 2020 at the rate that we're going, especially now that they're rallying behind him in uh, in Syria. So I feel yep. like we're just fucked, H.A. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I agree 100% with you. Look, when people say, oh, Hillary's gone, they don't get it. The whole, only reason we're talking about Russian hacking in in in, in April of 2017 is one person, Hillary Clinton. It's unbelievable, too, because people say, oh, the the threat now is Trump. Don't focus on Hillary. Well, how do you think you're going to defeat Trump? By finding out why Clinton lost. And the same reasons Clinton lost, they've actually doubled down and bolstered. There's there's a book written now about all the misogyny and all the uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, this in this book, Bernie Sanders actually is one of the one of the reasons blamed for Clinton losing. Of course, and it's unbelievable. Yeah, it, it's unbelievable when they talk about the Russian influence. Well, number one, like like I said, they can't point to anything Putin's going to do militarily anywhere, aside from prop up Assad. They can't say this is a specific national security threat to us because of X, Y, and Z. They can't say that. But in terms of Clinton losing. 
has anyone ever said, hey, you know, maybe we should fix the corruption in the DNC and make sure that, that the DNC doesn't screw over uh, the next progressive candidate? No. Nobody's talking about that. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Donna Brazil. Donna Brazil actually admitted that, yeah, yeah, she did actually give debate. She didn't give debate questions to Bernie. That's not the way it works. She gave debate questions to Hillary Clinton. She admitted that, no outrage. And then you get the Washington Post and the New York Times winning, winning Pulitzer Prizes. The, there's, it's well documented through WikiLeaks. There were friendly journalists in the New York Times. Maggie Haberman is one of them, who actually teed up stories and wrote stories. One guy, Glenn Thrush, worked for Politico, now works for the New York Times. He wrote to Podesta, say, hey, don't tell anybody that I sent you this. I know I'm not supposed to. An article, pre-publication. So the same system that cheated Bernie is not only still alive, it's working in overdrive. It's fighting for its life. It's not changing. I think the only way it could, it can change is, and I'm not advocating this, but another Trump win, but the, what, what they're doing right now, like you said, Trump's going to win re-election because Democrats are completely fractured. And it's interesting. The establishment doesn't get that, the establishment said, oh, they, the progressive have to fall in line, or people you know, like Mike or H.A. have to fall in line. But actually, it's us that they're blaming for costing the election. So they should fall in line with the progressives. Mm -hmm. It's the establishment that should actually fall in line with the Bernie or Jill Stein type voter. It's not the other way around, because without the Bernie or Jill Stein type voter, Democrats will lose again. Right. The, it, yeah, oh, the, Joanne, the Joanne Reed and the near attendance, they're going to go along with whoever the, the nominee is. It's the people that will say, no way, I'm not voting for a, war, a, a neocon. No way. It's those people you have to bring into the fold and say, okay, is this nominee good for you? So Right. And, you know, the same, um, to bring up criticism again, not to make this about us, but uh, I see it for Kyle Kulinski, uh, Jimmy Dore, Tim Black. They accuse us of being too hard on the Democrats when, you know, the Republicans, they're, they're much worse. But the, But the thing that makes it important to attack Democrats is if we don't have introspection, if we don't try to reform the left, then like you said, the Republican Party, they are empowered. And the thing about Democrats that I kind of feel like they're doing right now is they don't want to reform. And I kind of feel like they're just waiting it out right now. They're waiting out the storm. Yeah. They know that we're kind of headed towards a potential collapse of one of the two parties. Um, and we're all incredibly frustrated with the political establishment. But I think that the way that they see it is all they have to do is wait maybe eight years, potentially 12, you know, years of Republican administrations. And then we will be running back to the Democratic Party, even if they're still corporatists, with open arms because we will be so frustrated with Republicans. And then voila, you know, they don't have to do shit. They don't have to change. <laughs> um, and I kind of feel like this is something that's happening. But at the same time, another part of me feels as though we're so dissatisfied with right now with the Democratic Party that this is unsustainable. They have to change. So I kind of have these two competing sides right now, and I kind of wanted to know how you feel about the situation. I mean, are we headed for more of the same, or do you think that, you know, something's got to give? You know, they, they've got to they've got to change. Well, they have to change if they cared about policies. But if they only care about donors, which they everything they've done from Tom Perez to cheating Bernie to... Uh, now backing Trump with Syria, everything they've shown is that they don't care about policies. So the whole thing, what does a progressive even mean nowadays? Does it mean somebody who backs Trump's Syria strike? 
Is that what you, so progressive now means must overthrow Assad and then occupy Syria. That's what it means to a great many people. Or to a great many people, progressive means must fear Putin, don't know why, but Putin worked with WikiLeaks and Trump to hack the DNC and expose all the corruption that we're not supposed to know about. So that's, I mean, I don't even know what that term progressive means anymore. So in terms of the Democrats, you're you're right in that if they wanted to win, of course they would have to change. I thought that the mere win of Trump, I thought a, a Trump win would suddenly be this moment where they say, oh, my God, we've been so wrong. Me too. Let's, yeah, let's let's just restructure everything. Let's win again. Let's put, you know, let's actually do something, break up banks or, or stop these wars or all these things. But they're not. They're actually doing, and they're creating a Neil McCarthy era politics. They've already created it. And then the Trump Syria strike really did work. I mean, it's unbelievable. It really did shut them up. Now they're not talking about him. He's, I guess he almost won again, you know, with, with this. But you're right. I mean, if they want to win, they will look at whatever, you know, the Bernie voters. But how many times have you heard, oh, Bernie Sanders cost the election or Bernie voters or are you happy? And they even go, no, are you happy now because if you're voting for Bernie, are you happy? It's like, no, you're the other way around. You cheated <laughs> for the loser. Bernie right. Sanders would have won. We were right all along. Come on. Yeah, yeah, we were right all along. Bernie Sanders would have won. If he wasn't cheated, he would have won the primary and he would have won the, uh, when people say, well, he, uh, you know, four million more votes. Well, yeah, she she was given questions, um, all the superdelegates, every establishment person. Oh, she's so qualified. She's under criminal investigation. That's another thing. Mm -hmm. If people had actually, people got on me for writing about her email investigation. If If she got indicted, we would have had Bernie as nominee, and Bernie would have destroyed Trump. Mm-hmm. But they, again, they don't care about – their thing is not about winning. Their thing is about political power. Right. And if they, have to, if they have to lose and still keep their political power, that's fine for them because they get all the donors, and they still have their nice shiny desks, and they still have their, their status and everything. Um, if they lose again, I think that it's really going to be a paradigm shift. I think they'll still struggle for survival. But I think that, you know, the next wave of leading Democrats will be the Tulsi Gabbards, the Nina Turners, uh, and Bernie will be, you know, in, in his what, 80s at that point. <laughs> but, you know, I just think that they're heading towards a, a direction of more Trump uh, and, and everything they claim to dislike. So. Right. It's hypocritical. It's frustrating. He's unhinged. He's deranged. You know, he's unfit to be president. However, if he's going to be leading us into a new war, then I think that he is perfectly capable of doing that, despite everything that we've said about him being a loose cannon and whatnot. Yeah, it. the situation is very frustrating. And, you know, it sucks because I feel like the show lately, it's probably the same for you, has been like extra sad and depressing for a few yeah. weeks because, you know, you try to look for like any rays of hope but there's i mean with the exception of free college by the way in in new york which is great but i mean it's just such a shitty toxic political situation and now it's becoming scary with syria and now you know with donald trump posturing in north korea the situation uh you know it it just is it feels lose-lose for a voter and it feels as though we have no power right now in the elites the oligarchy the military industrial complex they are they're they're running things right now they always have been but it just we're really seeing you know the scale 
of control that they had, then we, we have little to no say. So, you know, I won't take up too much too much of your no, time. So do you want to take a moment and just plug anything that you are currently working on and uh, plug your Twitter and whatnot? Yeah, if you if you want to, you know, follow me, just go to H.A. Goodman on YouTube and counterpropa.com is my new publication and H.A. Uh, Goodman author on Twitter. But yeah, Mike, it was really great being uh, back. I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, always good to have you on the show. I think you always have very uh, good insight on issues that are really complex and controversial that people don't want to touch, but you, you run like <laughs> right into it. And that's what I love about you because you don't Thank give a you. shit. <laughs> no, I don't. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. See you soon. That's all I got for you guys on today's episode. If you've made it this far, I want to thank you so much for tuning in. But before we go, I have literally hundreds of people to thank this week for deciding to join the independent progressive media revolution. So I can't even count the amount of people that signed up on Patreon, uh, on PayPal to support us monthly, even if it's just a buck, you know, a dollar here, 10 bucks there. You guys have been incredibly generous, and I really want to show recognition to each and every single one of you that signed up this week, just so you know how um, appreciative I am of your generosity because it's just so heartwarming. So I want to thank Aaron Harris, Aaron Littman, Abdulatif Al-Zamel, Adam Rosenblum, Adam Webb, Addie Neal, Adeline Ramos, Adrian Banita, Ahmed Hunaif, Ahmed Koryom, Alan Borges, Alan Yeager, and you could check out his blog, alantravelsalot.com, Alejandro Lopez Ortega, Alex Mousseau, Alex Cheetah 79, Alfredo Maldonado, Amanda Garcia, Anna Leon, Anna Luz Perez Duran, Andrew Gale, Andrew Smith, Andy Price, Angelica Nizio, Angelo Rutzakis, Ann Schumann, Anthony Nelson, Anthony Nolan, Anthony Alvarez, Barbara Edelstein, Benjamin Blake Stanovich, Brianna, Brittany Walker, Bronson Barton, Caitlin Johnstone, Cameron Click, Carlos Dominguez, Carlos Mata, Carlos Faye, Casey Webb, Chad A. Sprindis, Cheshire Pierrot, Chris Harris, Christopher Brown, Claude R. Ellis, Coach Twitty Basketball, Colin Duffy, Colin Smith, Cristobal Debo, Damien Sobierowski, Daniel Johnston, David Balsam, David Boley, David Brown, David Dyer, David M. Young, David Rochwalik, David Rosado, David Rubenstein, Dennis Phillips, Dino Costi, Dia Aldori, Dylan Rayborn, the family of Douglas Hasseltine, Dustin Sinikoff, Edgaros Venkus, Edward Nardowicz, Edward Ramos, Albert Nunes, Ilu Mompitsu, Ellen Leong, Eric Barr, Eric Luster, Eric Pratt, Eric Rail, Eric Dolan Del Vicio, Eric Shirk, Aaron, Ernesto Garcia, Ethan, Ethan Coggins, Evan Henschen, Fabrice Bongartz, Felipe Sainz D. Erturi, Felix Weibig, Feliz, Fiona, Frank Martinez, Gabby Lee, Gabrielle Sui, George Georgia Coppolis, Hayden Davis, Heidi Rathjen, Hillary Lost to Donald 2016, Hubert E. Mikoski, Hugo Flores, Ingi Jade Brown, Jamaica Street, James Azraelian, 
Jamie Fullerton, Janet Goodman Clark, Jasimi Morataya, Jay Stage, Gene Hannigan, Jed Wilcox, Jeff Bassett, Jeff Saruwarti, Soratori, Jeff Wilson, Jeffrey Katz, Jennifer Jenny Galway, Jens Heiberg, Jarrell McKay, Jeremy Partingen, Jessica Desa, Joe Romano, Joel G. Esterline, John Ferfario, John McIntyre, Jonathan Kenworthy, Joseph Negron, Joseph Nesbitt, Joshua Pershin, Josie A., Justin Persley, Cage Edwards, Cameron Golbabai, Karna Krishna, Kawhi HD, Kayla Thompson, Kenneth Che, Carrie Venus, Kenneth Clements, uh, and I actually believe I forgot this person last time, so I'm sorry for forgetting you. Extra big shout out to Kevin. Um, Kevin Johnson, Khalid Nixon, Kim D. Luck, Kira Book, Kyle Verquill, Lenora M. Ruiz, Laura Bomber, Laura Hewn, Lawrence Butler, Linda Brink, Lisa Toth, Louis Leal, Lucille Hurst, Marie Fisher, Mark Ferrer, Mark H. Meyer, Mark McCarty, Mark Raposa, Mark DeWilliger, Mark Valentine, Marshall, Martin Becker, Matt Smith, Matthew Garrow, Megan Schumann, Melody Vargas, Melvin Resilis, Michael Drum, Michael Powell, Michelle Hilton, Mitch Crake, Molly Keeler, Morning White, Nadine Smith, Nancy Evans, Nancy Goats, Nancy Powers, Natasha Craig, Nate S., Neoli Brown, Nestor Gonzalez, New York, Nicolo Louise Poblet, Nicholas Kiros, Nicole D., Nikki Sonriza, Noel Miranda, Ol Sandberger, Oscar Garcia, Owen Steller, Pamela Cote, Patrick Roy, Patrick Smith, Paul Barboza, Pedre Jose, Peter Larson, Philip Glenn Pangelinen, Philip Novoa, Princeton Mason, Project Infinito, Queen Pounds, R.H. Rumor, Ralph Killenberger, Rebecca Escoto, Richard Gilder, Gildner, Ricky Bates, Robert Esparza, Robert Stanley Lemons, Robin Klinkner, Robo Go Go Robo, Ronald Del Rosario, Rodney Hertz, Roxanne, Roy Dwayne Benzinger, Ryan Farrell, Ryan Walker, Sal Zerbo, Samuel Schaefer, Sandra Newman, Scott Clark, Sean M. Kavena, Suin Chung, Simia Canis, Simon Rybanski, Simon Woodfork, Sky Braunhut, Soren Roos, Spencer Eek, Stacy Phillips, Stacy L. Wanil, Steve, Steve Dunigan, Stephen Nordby, Stressituki, The Critical Dump, Teho Arponen, Theodore Clark, Thomas Carroll, Thomas Zito, Thu Tam Wynn, Tyra Omilade, Todd Beaver, Thomas Smith, Trent, Trevor Hanna, Tricia Cano, Valerie Beard, Valerie Face, Vigard, Victor Stanton, Walrusman, Will Johnson, Will Van Allen, Zerus Ronan, Ivana Gonzalez, and Zachary Coleman. So thank you to each and every single one of you. I truly appreciate the fact that you not only watch the show, that but that you're willing to support the show as well. Thank you all so much. And to everyone else that's helping out in your own way, a lot of you have been saying I can't you know, pledge any money right now, but I'm sharing the videos more. Uh, I'm liking the videos. I've whitelisted your channel on Adblock. Thank you all so much. Every little bit helps. And you know, it's all important. So I acknowledge all of it and I want to thank all of you. So uh, that is the end of the episode for today um i will see you all next week it's been an exciting show i mean we are at 100,000 subscribers 
That's insane. Uh, so yeah, I'll see you all next week. Take care.